0: Human beings. No, no, no. Does every human being need to be accountable for their actions? Of course they do.
1: Why shouldn't we forgive them?
0: Dogs can be taught many useful things,
2: but
3: not if we forgive them every time they obey their own
2: nature. Suzanne takes you down to her place near the
4: river. You can hear the boats go by, you can spend the night beside. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Director's Club podcast. I am Jim Lazkowski. Patrick is on vacation this week, so expect a less funny episode <laughs> unless you're a fan of puns. With me today is uh, returning guest Kurt halfyard from row 3com and the Cinecast podcast. Welcome back, Kurt. Happy well, thank you very much. Right.
1: Uh, yeah, I'm ready to talk some Von Trier. I could... I. Said on the cinecast that I was going to try and uh, make this the longest episode <laughs> of uh, the Directors' Pub podcast ever. Just by you
4: could talk about Von Trier forever, and I look forward to uh, getting close to that. I, I completely agree. Although we've been doing pretty good with keeping it under three hours, although I, the, I think the last couple episodes we were you were on it was yeah. Closer to the three-hour mark, so which is fine if it happens. I have no qualms with that whatsoever. Especially, like you said, there is a whole lot to talk about with von Trier, and uh, hopefully, it won't be too dry and stuffy for you all. But I think, you know, we're going to have a lot to say regardless. But also joining us uh, is newcomer Matt Marco, who runs the No Name Movie Blog. So uh, welcome, Matt. Welcome to the show.
3: It's great to be here.
4: Yeah, so Matt, do you mainly just keep that uh that WordPress blog or have you written for other sites or anything uh, else? I,
3: I do freelance reviews for screen.com. Oh, cool. Uh just new release stuff. Uh, I'm kind of new to this writing about movie thing, like last year and a half, so still finding my feet a little bit.
4: Yeah, I noticed you've written some great um reviews and uh, essays on on von Trier and Patrick uh, you know, mentioned that uh, you were a fan and We're really excited to have you on to talk about the director, and we'll also bring up your uh, website at the end of the show when we do our final wrap-up. Well, as I stated earlier, everyone, Patrick has the day off, but uh, also just a heads-up that I won't be on for the next episode, which is on uh, Richard Lester, so consider us sort of swapping and taking a quick break because we've both been very, very busy lately. It just seems like summertime is just full of crazy things going on. Um, And also just some in-house stuff really quick. We've gotten like three or four really nice iTunes reviews lately, so if you're uh, also feeling generous, please feel free to drop us a rating over there, preferably one in the five-star category. Um, And there will be a bonus episode within the coming weeks when Patrick and I can finally catch up, and we're going to do an extended What We Watch segment uh, for a bonus episode, which we haven 't done in a i don 't know since we first started, I think when we were just sort of being aimless about our what we were doing, we were just sort of uh, i remember the last time we did something like that. it was groundhog day last year, and we were snowed in <laughs> that was a that was a terrifying snowstorm we had at the time to where we couldn 't even get out of our houses, so we just sort of skyped in and did like a oh, this is what I watched this past week, so it 'd be a fun different kind of approach for a bonus episode, but we're also going to catch up on listener emails as well. Um, So yeah, uh, since we do have a lot to talk about with the director of this episode, I think, why don't we just transition on over to the What We Watch segment. Hush little
0: Nicky, don't say a word. Wally, Blue Valentine, and the birds. Very bad things, the burning bear. Desert of a maiden closet land
3: City lights Freaks bright night Nothing sleep <laughs> Boogie nights Club paradise dark not me What movies did we watch this week?
4: Kurt, why don't you go first?
1: Well, uh, like you said, July is one of those months I've been on the go. I've been doing a lot more reading because I've been doing a lot of
4: traveling uh, lately. But Oh, do you tra- do you read and drive at the same time? No, I, <laughs> I, I travel by other means than car. Oh, good. Um,
1: we were out in Calgary a couple weeks ago, um, and... It's a long plane ride. Uh, ah, yes. That so, makes sense. So uh, that's a good time to get some reading done. But when we were out there, we did actually uh, stop. Uh, um, the, we decided when we had one day, we were going around kind of doing the tourist thing, taking the kids around, doing this and that. One one evening, we had kind of a quiet evening. It was, it was raining, and, and we just stayed in for the evening. And lo and behold, E.T. was on TV. Wow. And the kids had never seen E.T. before. And, and I realized that watching a movie on TV, like broadcast commercial TV is, I mean, to be honest, that's probably the first film I've watched on TV in over 25 years. I, I, hmm. I, I forgot <laughs> um, about, you know, once, once you could buy VHS um, yeah. and, and keep them that, and that, I don't know when that was, the late 80s. I'm staring um, at a
4: clamshell box of E.T. in my room. and I it's you know a clamshell VHS box that was once at one point dubbed a limited edition or something you know like
1: oh when they started doing sell through yeah um but but here's the thing so let me let me set up the the viewing experience I I -hmm. I mean usually I wait for that kind of stuff if I'm going to take the kids to watch it to play at a rep cinema here and go to the theater but it was there, and uh, the, the two people that were hosting us, generously hosting our stay, um, were big fans of the movie, and they wanted to watch it, and the kids hadn't seen it, so they wanted the experience. But it, it ended up being, it had been 20 years since I'd seen E.T. myself, uh, but it, the TV broadcast version was the car keys and walkie-talkie version, um, hmm. which I knew immediately. Like, I I was aware when they... Released it on I don't know if it was DVD or if it was Blu-ray or whatever they released it where they did some of this CGI editing and took out the guns and stuff. Um, I was aware of that stink, but I was not aware to the extent that this film has been edited. So There's that a lot was, of it. So if TV was strike number one, yeah, and they they crank up the foley on the keys jingling and jaggling it's distracting. <laughs> it's hell. Um, so strike number one was it was on broadcast TV. Strike number two was that it was the key and walkie-talkie version. Um, strike number three is that it was on one of those new or new-ish, uh, new to me, um, super high refresh rate TVs. Hmm. So it looked uh. like you were standing over, I don't know, was it uh, Jan de I don't know who shot ET. Um, it looked like you were standing over the shoulder of the DP while he was adjusting lights. Like, I... I those That's TVs weird. should be stricken from the planet. they wreck films <laughs> hmm. i'm going to get into the, the movie in a minute, but I just wanted to to build some context um around that because all of the the scenes in the um in elliot 's home um looked really flat like everything looked really flat, like even the like the like the wonderful lush sort of where the ship lands at the beginning and you know, E.T.'s out there picking plants and so forth. It, it just all looked really flat and garish and gross. And and I imagine if if I had thought of it, I could have gone into the TV and just turned the refresh rate down. It probably would have fixed the problem, but whatever. I wasn't going to mess with someone else's TV. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's a strange movie. That movie traumatized me as a child. Like, more than any other movie I can remember that movie Traumatized me, and I saw Jaws before I saw E.T. But there was something about the assault of the uh, hazmat guys yeah. in the house, like the spacesuit. It's
4: it's just such a surreal image. Oh, I know and that totally freaked me out when I saw it back when I was yeah, a kid.
1: That, um, although you know, watching it now, many many years later, I, I'm a little bit more pragmatic about it. To me, it's more about um, just how damn cute. Drew Barrymore was as a child like I, I, that was distracting it was distracting when you're watching it you're like Jesus that little girl's cute like really like crazy um, but uh, yeah I, I don't know if the movie I don't know looking at it as a as a 37 year old father um, I don't know it, it's I think it it was more magical when I was a child Like looking at it as an adult it's just kind of it's kind of a messy movie. I like the fact that there's tons of downtime and that it was still made in that era where movies didn't have to clang from the next plot point to the next plot point and they would like mainstream children's movies would really breathe. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, uh, there yeah. are lots of times in ET where the movie just kind of sits there like <laughs> almost nothing happening. Um particularly the 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 opening Bits and I don't know. Um, I, I I couldn't quite understand the government agent stuff. I mean, again, as a child watching it, it just looms at you, and it's awesome. But um, that movie doesn't make a lick of sense. <laughs> uh, I'll give it the uh, the um, the the bonding thing with ET. Very very well done. That scene still resonated with me. Yeah. Where. Elliot's in class and ETs <laughs> drinking coors and and they're, about to, they're they're about to dissect the frogs and like that that really visually works mm-hmm. and it it's funny and it's interesting and um and again every time my kids this is the fascinating thing watching it with small children is like um the kids are swearing the kids are misbehaving um the kids are left alone it's like hey Elliot you're 8 Watch your sister while I go run errands. Like I, <laughs> my kids were flabbergasted. I'm like, it, it was the 80s. Just, just run with it. Oh yeah. Kids swore. Kids smoked. Kids were left alone. Kids stole their parents' cars. Don't do anything. You see, it was a different time. Yeah, look it at all the stuff the funny. kids did in the Goonies and Explorers. Oh, yeah. You know this. Yeah. They were it's running rampant. They never, it's funny that because my kids have watched the Goonies many times and they love that movie, but they never commented about. The kids in E.T. for the first half of the movie are downright surly. <laughs> like, they are mm-hmm. surly. I mean, I understand. It's like she's just had her husband leave her and there's all this tension in the household or whatever. But the kids really go out of their way to be assholes in that movie. And, and my kids picked it up. Whereas in The Goonies, it's just like the kids are just hanging out. Like, they're just, you know, doing their thing. Um, yeah. So, it was it was kind of an interesting... Interesting rewind under n- certainly not the most perfect circumstances. I would now I kind of want to see it properly with no commercial breaks. And I mean, she had it PVR'd, or mm-hmm. uh, or she could like fast forward through the commercials. With I, I don't understand uh, computers, I'm okay with, but the TV technologies and whatever, she could fast forward through the commercials. So um so we didn't really watch the commercials; we just had to skip through them or whatever. But.
4: Yeah. Well, I I know that the uh, the Blu Ray is coming out in November, and uh, I think that uh, those changes are going to be omitted. I believe they, are. they already, are.
3: Yeah, he said no more changes.
4: Yeah, because he's he's not a fan of doing that. He's I mean, whereas Lucas can't help but do that consistently to all of his movies. I, think I feel so- like
3: I feel like Jaws was the breaking point there, where he looked at it. Mm-hmm. And it was like either I have to fix this, or I need to just make a policy not to. Yeah, and he decided not to. Thank God. Oh yeah. So Jaws is completely untouched. Like the the actual 4K or
1: 8K or whatever K Blu-ray yeah. master is playing in the cinemas right now here, and I have not had a chance to get out um, and it see it. The, it is
3: but the same movie that came out when Jaws originally came out. That is the way it should be.
1: Yeah. Like I, I'm not a I'm not a gigantic hater of them. Like removing the telephone pole prop in uh Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know when the when the truck turns over or or the, like getting rid of the glass that you can see when the cobra spits at Indy. I'm not a huge detractor of that, like the very subtle scrubs cuz I'm sure they recolor time these things mm-hmm. when they when they remaster it. So it's like there is like even if it's the exact same movie, there's there's some like Otherwise, it wouldn't be remastered. It would just be that movie just copied over, right? So I'm not a but, – but yeah, the, uh, the, the the wholesale changes or, or trimming of scenes, unless you're going to say it's a totally different version. But if I'm not mistaken, the E.T. DVD when it came out had both versions. So Yeah, I think so. You could show this bastardized, ghastly version
3: mm. or you could – still watch the original. Even more problematic than the walkie-talkie thing is the inserted E.T. shots, I feel. Because they all feel really out of place. Yeah, I remember that
4: being an issue for me, too, when I re okay, it. Okay,
3: wait a minute. Wait a minute.
4: Because I didn't notice this.
3: There, there are, there are CG E.T. puppets or whatever models put into the movie in the new version, or in the revamped version.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Can you, can you uh, th- throw an example out off the top of your head? Is like when he's in the fridge,
3: or I'd have to Google it.
4: Yeah, I'm not 100 percent sure myself. I did. I, I want to say that. This, yeah, I saw the, the 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 retweaked version of it at a drive-in, and that's kind of. It was a really sort of wonderful experience for me rewatching this along with Close Close Encounters at a drive-in. Like because that's (laughs) that's when I first fell in love with movies back in the mid '80s was seeing something like Explorers at a drive-in, and although I my first experience with with ET was at a movie theater, and I was actually like sick to my stomach from the (laughs) towards the end because it like it it took me two viewings. Sorry, I didn't mean to. Yeah, no, it's fine. It was just emotionally like I don't know. As a kid, I couldn't take it, or (laughs) there's something about the way. it becomes really horrific. So I
1: was, I was born in 75. The movie came out in 82. So uh, um, I was seven. Again, I would seen Jaws when I was six. But I, but I had to leave the cinema. I saw Jaws on VHS, so I didn't see Jaws in cinema. Mm. But I had to leave the cinema, and I didn't see E.T. fully until the remastered – like they – not remastered. The, they used to re-release movies back then in the theaters, and they gave E.T. a full, like, wide-everywhere re-release in 84, so I said the second time around, I saw it completely, but I had to leave during the again the what's his name Peter Coyote and his and his yeah. gang of of suited men finally catch up and 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 like seal off the house or whatever. Yeah, yeah so once my parents just that. bailed just bailed on the movie uh, the first viewing, which is weird. I, I mean, uh, whatever. I, was I just I feedback. just
4: sort of you know uh, correlated like you know Elliot reaching out to E. T. when he was really sick as being. In the hospital, and I've had when I was younger like experiences of being in a hospital and feeling really sick. So I almost right. feel like it tapped into some sort of you know uh, primal, yeah, some memory. sort of like yeah, like psychosomatic trigger. This, <laughs> the scene when
1: Elliot's brother finds him like face down in the river. <sighs> that scene looked awesome. Again, I don't know yeah. if it was digitally enhanced or or what was going, but I mean, wow that scene because the whole scene is gray and white and then of course et at that point is gray and white it is just a there's a shot there's your movie like i i know everyone loves the the over the the moon shot and um and uh and like the kids were like
4: hey that's the logo for that movie i'm like yeah that's where <laughs> that's it comes definitely from. an um, iconic image that you never forget it is
1: like people well, kids know it from other movies right like sure. uh, um and uh, I think the Gremlins has, because it's the Amblin logo. What did, your, um, what, what
4: did your kids think of it? Because, like, I mean, the movie itself, to me, takes that sort of childlike perspective on this sort of extraordinary they, event. It, it, I, think, I
1: think the presentation, and this is the, this is the anti-power of watching it on TV. Like, this mm-hmm. is why movies should never be watched on television, because I think the kids would have had a, a more visceral reaction, a much more visceral reaction, had we watched it, properly as it stood they, they 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 thought it was they laughed at all the funny parts and they were weirded out by all the kids behaving badly but they didn't seem to have much of it not an overt reaction to the movie not certainly not the reaction i had when i was their age yeah. so i i'm chalking it up to the fact that i saw it in you know a 3500 seat Movie palaces <laughs> uh, back because they they still existed in in my part of the world back in eighty one um, and uh, and they were watching it I mean albeit it was like a, you know sixty five or whatever inch TV but um, you know with the constant interruptions of commercials and stuff Ooh, um, yeah. so it was it was one of those things that's why I tried to set up the the whole thing I I, I really feel like I've I've watched scenes from E T. <laughs> When we watched it, but i didn 't really watch the movie. <laughs> um, I must admit though all the uh, model shots of uh, wherever in California they live um, are fantastic they looked they did look good, mm-hmm. even with the flat image like the they 're in the valley right, and you just get that endless spray of lights it 's not supposed to be l a but it sort of looks like l a and uh, or it looks like the thing. That fox <laughs> overlooks you know in the logo it's just this wonderful field of red lights, um, and that was kind of cool,
4: yeah, I know like a couple of my friends who you know put this up there as you know one of the movies that made them fall in love with movies or a movie from their childhood that still resonates with them to this day, and uh, like I said, when I was a kid, it just it, it, you know maybe it just i wasn't it was i wasn't feeling it at the time or whatever or I mean, obviously there are moments like the iconic image where you get that childlike sense of wonder and you can't help but be enthralled and in awe of, you know, what's taking place. But um, I felt like that same sense of, oh my God, look at what movies can do with something like Explorers or Back to the Future.
1: Well, you said Close Encounters of the Third
4: Kind. Yeah, Close Encounters Comparing E.T. to Close Encounters of the Third
1: Kind is, they they don't even belong in the same sentence. Like, Close Encounters is a thousand times better of a film.
4: I completely agree, especially seeing it at the drive-in. But I did, I, it, I think it's just like the sort of longing for that childlike innocence that's, you know, kind of crept up into my, uh, into my tear ducts towards the end. I don't know. Like it just made me feel, I mean, again, it could be just the environment too. Seeing this at a drive-in when, you know, especially since drive-ins are very hard to come by around here. And being Private able to- showing rep programming, that's yeah. uh, almost
1: a uh, that's almost an unheard of.
4: I know and it was wonderful to see two movies that you know I saw when I was six or seven years old, um, but Close Encounters to me still stands up as being one of Spielberg's all time best movies, and uh, E. T. just feels like you know it's fine it, it, for what it is. I I like it, you know, and it's very it's a very sensitive and funny film, you know, that had, that, like I said, delves into that sort of childhood innocence. And then what happens when the, you know, ad- adults and their indifference or ignorance and, you know, misplaced authority figures coming into the picture and how that all sort of, you know, um, infects your sense of, uh, you know, innocence when you're young. And I like that component of it. And I, I, I sort of, more or less gravitate towards the Zemeckis and Spielberg vision of what, you know, aliens are like. Maybe it's the sort of optimist in me that hopes they wouldn't be, you know, like they are in Independence Day or something. So yeah. I I like that approach to um, you know, uh alien stories in general. But um yeah, I I I th- I think it holds up, but it's not necessarily like one of my all-time favorite movies or anything. Like a lot of people seem to put, you know, Think of it as a classic.
1: All watching ET this time did for me was reminded me of how strong of an effect it had on me as a kid. But I, I would, I must mm-hmm. admit, it didn't have. And and I mean, I weep in movies ridiculously easy. Same. Um, like <laughs> if there's a father son thing, I'm gone. Oh, That's it. God. Every time destroys me. I, I the fact that I didn't really get all that much of a flutter. I got some warm smiles. Blah blah blah. But the movie just sort of this time, again under those circumstances, just sort of sat there, um, sat there uh, rather rather flat. Well, but I, I must admit those again. those changes. Now and, uh, I'm glad in a way that I was not aware that they put in CGI
3: ETs in the middle of the movie because that would have it's, been uh, it's even actually more the beginning. I looked it up. It's when he's like escaping at the very beginning of the film. There's scenes oh, of him running, running away. The cornfield. yeah, right, right yeah yeah you might be right. um
1: I was so like distracted by the car keys like and and you realize that almost every shot of the government agents first of all they never show a face until after they take over the house, like you never actually see a face. they're always shot in that cowboy like hip shot, and it's always on the pistol <laughs> um but so you know like it's like what the hell? Are they all janitors? Like, they got these huge rings of keys. <laughs> it's really quite ridiculous. And the full, fo- like I said, the foley is, like, super cranked. So, like, they're, like, off over in the forest. You can hear the keys. Maybe they wanted to do that. Maybe they wanted to create the, like, the jingle jangle of the keys as this ominous, you know, they're coming for you thing. But it, it, in light of me seeing the other version. Now, Again, I don't know if it, I never talked to my kids about it because it was like way past their bedtime by the time we were done. So they went pretty much right to bed. So we didn't have our usual chit chat. But but I don't know if they were affected by that or not, but it was just freaking distracting. And uh, yeah, it it says something for, again, severely altering the cultural document for, for sensitive eye reasons rather than artistic. Like I'm all for, you know, them chopping up Blade Runner. Ten years after the fact, and saying here's what we've done, um, like eight times or something, right? But <laughs> they got it um, right eventually, though. That's the key, exactly. Mm. But when they're doing this just for the sake of, well, children's movies are like this now. Um, well, I'm sorry, I, I don't want to see them censor Roll Dolls: The Witches*. I don't want to see Oof. them censor *Something Wicked This Way Comes*. No. I, you know, there's just there's too many really awesome, creepy kids movies that. Um, like gremlins certainly i don't want to see them censored
3: um so yeah it just it was jarring so there's my uh, E.T. spiel i'm gonna admit that i didn't see et as a kid it was like before my time i was born in 85 so like it was a thing that was on tv but i never watched so i watched it for the first time two years ago hmm. and i saw the new version first and uh While I agree with basically everything you said about the problems of the movie, when I went and and found the version that was the right version, the thing that struck me was that it's one of the few movies, and Spielberg has problems with this now, he didn't back then, that made guns impactful. Like, when a gun shows up, it's a big deal. And I think that's something that's really important in movies that have, like, Smaller, focused narratives because now just guns, whatever. And I don't want to be like a me like violence in media is bad person, but I like that when those have impacted movies, like it's important that this person has a gun and people react to that in the way that you would if someone had a gun.
4: Yeah, no, that makes
3: sense. Well, I, I I hate to think is, that we're
4: desensitized to that.
3: Well, this is no, we're not. This is the Michael Haneke approach.
1: Yeah, if if you if you watch, um, uh, Cache, mm-hmm. there's like. There's like four seconds of violence in Cachet. But holy and shit, those four God, seconds! It's an effective four seconds. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> and so, so it's one of those things that, um, that if yeah, if you can if you can juice it to an iconic image or lock it into one scene, you will. People walk away thinking that Cachet is a violent movie. <laughs> you know, Reservoir Dogs is quite famous for people thinking that it's like, like a wall to wall orgy of violence and. You know, most of the stuff is off-screen. I mean, there's blood on screen, but uh, almost everything horrible happens off-screen. I think it's more effective when it's effectively shot.
4: Yeah, exactly. That's what I was saying. And plus, it's just effective when it plays in your head to where you think of it as being really graphic and violent in your mind rather than what you're seeing on screen. And that's a really effective way to, you know. Somewhere back in high school, we had to write some sort of essay on...
1: Violence and movies, and I remember I, I, I it, it compared m- The Road Warrior to Dead Ringers, hmm. and um, The Road Warrior is always violent all the time, <laughs> and there's like rape on screen, and it's all nasty, and and that's fine, but it, it, you just kind of whatever after a while, it's that's that's what the movie is. It's sure. guys in masks riding around in dune buggies and and whatever. Dead Ringers doesn't have any real on-screen violence whatsoever, but you feel assaulted by that movie. Oh, so it's just violent. seeing those medical
4: devices and tools and <laughs>
1: it's the opening credits.
4: Nothing's happening. It's inanimate objects.
1: <laughs> yeah, and that's I agree with, with what you said, uh, Matt, about the gun. That's that's, that's so no, that's true. a great
4: point. I just I also found it really interesting that Reservoir Dogs came out the same year as Unforgiven, and both of those movies sort of like you know, not necessarily Reservoir Dogs, it wasn't its thesis, but it has moments where it's like deconstructing our response to violence in movies in a way and sort of like demystifying it. And I I just really at that time, my, my mind wasn't privy to those things. Like I just wanted to watch a cool movie and just have a good, you know, emotional response to it. But over the years, I'm like, oh, that's really interesting, you know, because yeah, both of those movies... you kind of get both
1: with both of those films. Yeah. You, you can take it either way. You can read it as just a, a well-constructed piece of entertainment or you can and 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 i i think et has some of that like Mm -hmm. i mean like you can you can spend a lot of time and i'm sure there's been tons of words written on you know et and and like you said in the divorce and the kids and 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 everything else but um uh watching it now it it was kind of dodgy and and how it held together so
4: just good good old-fashioned fluff maybe you know there's nothing wrong with that. You know, I just think that I, at the I time I consider
1: it definitely in the in the uh middle to lower I mean I like the fact that Steven Spielberg made a a an alien movie that was small and very intimate. Like that I do agree sure. that that's a noble thing to do. With but with the small movie. Yeah, exactly.
4: <laughs>
3: yeah. I it's, like it's War of the like World's th- actually. I was surprised it's not like Close Encounters wasn't a small, intimate movie. Like nothing like, that's happens. Why, for most of that movie. exactly
1: mm-hmm. that's why I think it's the, the thousand times better film because it kind of does everything that E. T. does, except
3: the protagonists are adults. Like, but I can mean, you would a kid respond to Close Encounters? I feel like E. T. is the version that is for kids. I
4: did. I mean, I saw it when I was probably too young because there was some stuff that was really creepy in the first half of that movie. To yeah, you know, in to like mind. power outages. For me, like triggering sequence, Ooh. yeah,
1: like and the end, the final sequence. I mean, Close Encounters engages children because I saw it when I was very young, and I remember being. But I wasn't like I was gutted by E. T. So there mm-hmm. you go. So obviously, clearly, it was still Close Encounters for kids.
4: I mean, I think I was a little more restless at times, you know, because there's this long period of you know Richard Dreyfus just obsessing over it, the uh, image that he has. Which, you know, now I adore it. I adore everything about that movie pretty much. But I think as a kid I was kind of like, well, when are we going to see the aliens? You know, maybe I had that a little bit, but I think I still loved the movie and it could have been just because of how spectacular, you know, how it all plays out and everything. I think, I think, I think kids could get into it, you know, overall. We had a high tolerance as
1: kids for watching <laughs> movies because my parents would just bring us to whatever they wanted to watch. And there was no so, distractions. Like, there was we, no we, phone we and watched- no
4: laptop. You
1: know, we watched Out of Africa with my parents. Oh my God! The Redford Street movie. I mean, there's nothing in that movie for kids. Nothing. And we just sat there for. And it's not a not a not a short movie either. I still remember us being fidgety in that movie. But so something like
4: Close Encounters, no problem. I think I might have sat through the Malagro Beanfield War with my parents yes. for crying out loud in the cinema. Ah, uh, maybe at home. It might have been at home but i again i but i think even when they had movies on even if it was just on cable or something it wasn't like i had to have a toy or something else around i was just watching whatever was on the tv maybe i wasn't fully engaged with it at all times if it was a boring movie about adults but I was like oh cool i'm watching something and nowadays it's even harder to-
1: the magic box is on i must pay attention
4: yeah so uh matt what what would you like to bring up real
3: quick here I'll try to be shorter than the ET talk. Oh no, that's <laughs> um, fine. I love I love talking about ET. That was great. <laughs> so everyone on Twitter is talking about Newsroom and watching it, despite the fact I think everyone I know hates it. Interesting. And uh, I watched the first episode, and all it really wanted to make me do is watch broadcast news again, which I've been doing a lot recently. <laughs> I, love I told news. yeah, broadcast news is High one of my fives all-time, all time. Yes, absolutely.
4: <laughs> Albert Brooks forever. Although Patrick I I don't want to say like cuz he can't defend it himself right now, but he hates the final few minutes of that movie. Like he think it betrays the rest of the movie and I'm like, I don't see where you're coming from with that. It's just a reunion. <laughs>
3: you know? I agree. Absolutely. Um but the thing that it struck strikes me the most in contrast to the newsroom is that Broadcast News has an appreciation and sympathy for people who aren't like mouthy intellectuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, um, The William Hurt character is brilliant. Like I feel like he is the focal point of that movie a despite being the bad
1: fi- Are we talking Broadcast News or are we talking the newsroom? Broadcast News. Okay, good.
3: Uh, I feel like he's the focal point of that movie despite kind of being the bad guy that you want to hate. <laughs> Be- and uh, I feel like movies about people who aren't like witty intellectuals don't happen well very often like Mm -hmm. you see buffoons but not people who just really aren't articulate or smart and uh that's the thing i really like about the movie because it ends up making you sympathize with him and makes everyone kind of culpable in this degradation of news standards yeah in the way that sorkin won't believe because of his idealism, like grasping onto this idea. (laughs) Things were great back then. No, people were always bad. It's just the natural tendency to sometimes do wrong things. Now, I haven't Uh, seen the
4: newsroom pilot, but does he get on his soapbox quite a bit? Because that was the thing that turned me off about Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip was like, it felt like his network moment, you know. Like- I really,
3: I really like Sorkin. Like I liked uh, Sports Night and I like West Wing quite a bit, despite mm-hmm. the fact that they have these problems too. Sure. But it feels a lot angrier and a lot more like old man railing against kids on the internet. And uh. Uh, as a kid on the internet, I disapprove. <laughs> Well, that's, no, I mean, I think that's what's interesting
4: with broadcast news is, like, you, 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 those are, like, three of the most fully dimensional characters, you know, in almost any sort of rom-com kind of setting, where it's, like, you do have sympathy for each character at different times, and then there are times when they do despicable things and you can't stand them for what they're doing. They just feel really human, you know, despite being witty intellectuals, too, you know, it's, like... That's that's something about that movie is like there are pieces of dialogue that just feel like, oh, yeah, this probably – this feels like a screenplay, but it just fits so well with with what these characters and how they would interact with one another. To um, be perfectly honest,
1: they do – well, maybe you said this already, but they do really give props to Hurt being able to do what he does well. Mm-hmm, like, it may not be what Albert Brooks – Wants it to be. Uh, I mean, but he goes out there with, you know, he 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 hits his marks, which is part of production. <laughs> and uh, Albert Brooks is yeah, like, the, the the one of my all time like pure horrific, but still absolutely hilarious scenes is when brooks just starts sweating and yes. just melts right down like that is a golden moment in cinema like it is it is so like you say like the ricky gervais like sort of comedy or whatever
4: It, it it's all little league compared to that scene <laughs> that scene oh, is i know just and just i mean this is the moments that he you know sort of uh breaks down a bit with with holly hunter and just Starts being completely honest and confessional to her about how he feels. It just feels like, oh my God. I've had moments like that where I certainly wasn't that graceful or at least came up with these awesome things to say, but he just nails it. Albert Brooks is amazing in that movie. Like, he is more or less Albert Brooks, but just like, I mean, just the, again, I think James L. Brooks respects his character so much and also is not afraid to let them be imperfect, you know, and just let them have these incredibly, uh, sort of flawed moments in their lives and acknowledge them and let them be, you know, who they are in sort of like this organic way. And it feels, it feels like a, you know, like he loves his characters and, and wants to showcase them in a way that, man, I don't really get that from a lot of, other uh, sort of rom coms with that, and it's got just an awesome sort of backdrop behind it all too. Uh, I haven't seen the the pilot for the newsroom, although I'm very curious because when things are this like, because I I, th- I feel like I've read some good things or I've heard at least it's you know it, it's it's Aaron Sorkin, and if you like Aaron Sorkin, maybe you'll you'll be on board despite the more you know his more grandiose
3: preachy kind of moments and stuff. Is this an expectation situation or is this like – It might be. There's a lot of – like the people who defend him often bring up the argument this is the backlash for social network. Um, He's had a really good run lately.
1: Uh, So maybe people just are expecting the moon every time. And television is the worst. Like people shit on season two The Wire after – no. Like
3: twenty minutes. No, in no, season no, no. two, don't, and I'm like, don't really. I'm, I'm Watch watching two season one. Don't spoil it. Oh, okay, I won't okay. spoil
1: anything. All I'm saying is, and you, you're probably aware that that the wire shifts focus from season. Yes, to yes season. I do know that. And the and while, how far are you into season one? Uh, seven, eight episodes. Okay, fine, perfect. The wire itself takes. I wasn't into the wire until at least four episodes in. Mm-hmm. So people judging the and this is season one, and season two is even more jarring because you now have expectations. Like you're you're like, you're used to the this cast of characters, and they yeah. they shift focus dramatically, and you're like, I don't want to meet these. I don't care about <laughs> these characters. Like I want the other characters right. because or whatever. And then, but by about. The third or fourth, it's f- hilarious. The wire almost every season takes three or four episodes before you're like right there, and then like that second season is is solid, solid work, and people crap on it all the time. And uh, it, it, and I, I have a feeling that this is probably a situation. How can you judge these complicated TV shows now uh, by one or two episodes? That being said. I watched one episode of True Blood and that's it. I'm fucking done. Uh,
2: like <laughs> no, never
4: I'm, again. <laughs> I'm actually right with you on there. And I like I really was on board with Alan Ball with Six Feet Under. I mean that show had its problems. You know there were it definitely had some detours I didn't buy or I was kind of disappointed with a, a couple of episodes here and there. But I was I was pretty much you know like oh Alan Ball whatever he does I'm I'm going to give it a give it a you know a try and man, True Blood was awful, and that movie he did was really awful. Oh, one of my most hated movies Ugh. of
1: the year, The, the uh, Towelhead. The, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah oh, yeah. my Lord, that movie's yeah. bad.
4: No, but I think a lot of it does have to do with now we live in a time where we want to you know, voice our comments immediately after watching yeah. something instead of letting it process and maybe waiting until halfway through the season or towards the end of the season to really have an overall assessment of the show as a whole. You know, I mean, uh, we're, getting,
1: we're getting into Mandalay territory,
4: uh, <laughs> where where you know, be careful what you wish for, be careful yep. what you think
1: you want, because sometimes those horrible, awful things have unintended positive qu- uh, results that you don't consider until you go the. We should just all be happy liberals. Like sometimes that's not the way, mm-hmm. um, or so says Lars von Trier.
4: Well, I think that. Uh You know, for my choice here for what we watched, I I I feel like this is kind of appropriate because uh, it's been a long time since I've enjoyed an Oliver Stone movie, and the reason why I think you know he's it's kind of apropos is because (laughs) much like von Trier, he seems to really push people's buttons uh, with a lot of his films. You know, and although I don't know if I don't think von Trier will ever make a movie like uh, World Trade Center or something, you know, something really safe, I guess. But I actually really like his early stuff, uh, Salvador talk radio. And I like platoon despite, you know, it's preachiness. And again, he has a monologue towards the end that just spells out everything that he's trying to say, which kind of bugs me. And, uh, but I mean, you got JFK and it's weird. Like natural born killers is one of those movies I definitely want to talk about again at length at some point on this show, because that was a movie I saw in the theater And it was my first experience, you know, like, I loved this movie because I was just an angst-ridden high schooler with, you know, it was a flashy sort of MTV-style ADHD approach to filmmaking that I thought, wow, this is just fucked up and cool, (laughs) you know? And uh, then, like, later in life, I feel like it's, you know, a sledgehammer message movie. Really? Yeah, that's kind of only mildly entertaining.
1: Not to get off on a on a Natural War and Killers tangent, but, I mean, we talked at length about it on an earlier episode of the Movie Club podcast. And mm. Natural War and Killers is a movie that I went into and flat-out freaking hated. Just hated everything about that movie when I watched it. And over the years, I've, I've... Like, okay, the only thing I didn't hate about that movie was the Rodney Dangerfield sitcom <laughs> segment, which I thought was hilarious right yeah. from moment one. But everything else... I didn't like Woody Harrelson. I didn't like um, the girl from Cape Fear. Yeah, Juliet Juliette Lewis. I, I, I didn't. I didn't like very much with that movie. Um, but over the years, I've come to really, really love <laughs> Natural Born Killers. So I'm like the yeah. exact. Yeah. I. I, I and uh, the cinematography uh, in that movie, the the the, mm-hmm. the spastic film change, which which is actually mega in. JFK. Like, I mean, yeah. people always say Natural Born Killers, but holy, JFK is like a hodgepodge. So Natural Born Killers just applied it to a different subject and, and whatever. I, I used to have... What I said when we were talking about the savages, which I assume we're yes. getting to here, but um, <laughs> the one thing about... I only like Oliver Stone when he's spastic and self-indulgent. I don't like him earnest and preachy and self-indulgent. Mm-hmm. And I, I like him when he's spastic and self-indulgent. In, yeah, indulgent because he's a complete contradiction. And cinema is one of those things that contradictions work just fine. It, it's, I guess, oh, yeah. general, right? And so when I'm watching The Savages and JFK and Natural Born Killers, the three, and, and to a degree talk radio, um, those movies are awesome because they seem to be saying one thing, but they're indulging in the opposite of what they're trying to say. And it's like, I will take <laughs> The Savages over traffic any day of the week. Any Ooh, day of the week. It's a bold statement. And I don't even I don't even mean like as a preachy movie, I just I I traffic is too goddamn preachy. Um and uh and The Savages is a barrel of monkeys. It's it's a it's a boatload of fun.
4: Yeah, I think that you know, um yeah, with natural born killers there are just you know Nowadays, yeah, Woody Harrelson, Juliette Lewis, their their performances don't do much. And just having a moment where, you know, Oliver Stone chooses to throw text onto the characters that says too much TV. You know, like when I was a kid, like I was like, or a kid, I didn't see this when I was like (laughs) seven or eight. I saw this when I was like seventeen, and I thought, wow, this is just a, a crazy, insane mishmash of a movie that obviously I know what it's trying to say. I know that it's like about, you know, being inundated with the media and how it's affecting us and everything and, um, you know, satirizing it. Um, it was, you know, maybe, I guess, Oliver Stone's answer to, to network, but just done, you know, full throttle. Or and, to die and, for. Yeah. Oh, yeah, to die for. Good point, yeah. Um, but nowadays, it's it, it just, to me, it's, it does kind of rub me the wrong way. Like, there are just cutaways and choices that don't really fit you know, just like when Woody Harrelson's giving that interview, why do we cut away to, you know, some girl's tit getting sucked? <laughs> like, like I, I don't understand. I mean, yeah, it, but the, it, the but channel it uses, changing it uses the bomb track. So I know, but it's, the, the, <laughs> it's I understand he's trying to do the channel changing kind of mentality going yep. on, but uh, it's more annoying to me now as I've gotten older, which is crazy. Now I'm starting to turn into my dad. When get we saw, off my lawn. Yeah, basically. That damn music. <laughs> but let's get to the savages after all that. Um I really <laughs> liked it. Uh it has this incredible pace and energy to it. Um you know, his usual sort of cutting away to that, you know, different film styles and effects were kept to kind of more of a minimum this time. As compared really? to like something like except New for like the opening fifteen minutes, well yeah, where you get like six of them. Well sure, <laughs> sure, and like when they're driving and everything's in fast motion, which I thought was kind of cool, just to sort of black see, and know, white. There's yeah. a few
1: shots of Blake Lively just randomly driving around mm-hmm. in black and white for no apparent reason, right?
4: But I was I was totally along for the, for for this ride, and I was you know curious to see how things were going to play out, and I didn't feel like he glorified either side to where I had to choose sympathy. You know, I know that. You know, Matt sort of brought that up, but I, I really just thought it was kind of a fun, violent exercise and degradation. You know, I mean, it, to me, it was
1: as close as he's ever going to make to an Alexander Payne movie. He's <laughs> he's lobbing he's lobbing stink bombs in all directions delightfully, and and uh, I'm cool
4: with that. Has yeah. uh, Anybody read the book? No, I haven't. I know that one of our previous guests is a huge
3: fan of the book, so I, I'm curious to get his thoughts on it I, I i really like the author but i haven't read the book mm. but don winslow writes kind of these low-key like modern noir books and uh it feels like so when i watched that movie i felt like it was oliver stone doing an elmore leonard movie sure totally yeah it's just like these big broad noir like stock characters brought into the modern era and then used for haphazard social commentary
4: yeah i mean like there's uh, I really one like moment
3: Savages, but it's bananas. It is. It's and bananas. I,
1: and, and and that's what... This is the thing with Stone. When he goes there, you know, when he gets all De Palma-like and starts fucking splitting screens and doing everything, I'm like on board <laughs> with that. Like, I I, I, I kind of dig that. And you know what? It's been a good, like, eight years since I've seen a post-pulp fiction, like, Tarantino wannabe movie, and <laughs> I'm fucking cool yeah, with that. Yeah, that's, like, that's a I, good I'm, point. I'm ready. I'm ready for... This year's Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead. You know, like, I'm ready for that. I didn't like Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead when it was new, when, when it came out, because we were inundated with post Tarantino wannabes. But it's been a while since someone's made that. And when you look at the scenes with Salma Hayek and Blake Lively and, and Blake Lively and Benicio del Toro, those are Tarantino esque scenes where he just mm-hmm. lets the actors do their thing. And the actors are not. They're not real people. Um, they're they're just awesome on screen avatars of something, and that is fucking great. Oh no, <laughs> like totally. That, I mean, I I, I do wonder, scene,
4: you know? I do wonder if we're elevating it just because it isn't Wall Street Two or any given Sunday. And like, I, you're right though, because I think that if this had come out, you know, post Tarantino, it would have seemed like another, you know true romance kind of a ripoff or something. Cause it has a Tony Scott kind of feel to it and it's, and it's over the topness, you know, but, but let's be fair. I mean, who was doing, um, you
1: know, uh, spastic epileptic avid seizures first. Was it Oliver Stone <laughs> or was it Tony Scott? I don't mm. know. I, I always think that Oliver or that Tony Scott got into that like super nutso period. Huh. Well into the like closer to the two thousands, like when he made the um, BMW short, the higher you know, I don't know if you've ever seen those. They're like a bunch of short films by different directors, and they all star Clive Owen. Hmm. And they were commissioned by BMW. They're oh, wow. they're all quite good. And so Ang Lee did one, and and um, hmm. in in R two the the guy who did uh, Moros Perros he did one, and um, Tony Scott did one, and that was the first one. It's like a, it, it's Gary Oldman and uh, I can't remember. Who else but it's like this James Brown making a deal with the devil, and it's like totally spastic uh, and and from there on in, but I'm like that is uh eight years after JFK and six years after natural born killers Tony Scott before was more like more like a hyper blunt version of Ridley like he had all <laughs> the sort of like white lights and smoke and steam and Flashy cutting, but he he was just a little blunter. Like you know, like uh, like the hunger feels like a Ridley Scott movie with a slightly better commercial weirdness. Um,
4: yeah, and, and then like
1: something like Domino
4: was, comes out, and
1: it feels yeah, well, like see, Domino is way past like Domino's right. like 05, right? So I, I I personally like I mean I know what you're saying when you say the Savages feels kind of like a modern Tony Scott movie, but Stone was doing this anyway, <laughs> like long before. So to me, it just feels like. That you know, id, yeah, you know, sugar sticks version of <laughs> Oliver Stone is what I like, and and that the the Savages for me, just I I, I was the most forgiving audience um when I watched that yeah. movie because so much of it worked.
4: Yeah, I know it was just an exercise in you know pulpy entertainment, but I mean, it, I guess if people think that there's more to it, like you know, a, a hidden message about. The war on drugs, I kind of wasn't conscious of it necessarily. I mean, like, there's certainly like a moment where, you know, uh, Travolta brings up the whole sort of Walmart, uh, you know, perspective yep. of how the drug trade is going on. And, uh, you know, I, I, that didn't really make me roll my eyes because it sort of fit with the the overall context of the scene and how the characters were thinking in terms of business propositions. So that stuff really didn't bug me. You know, I mean, Stone is another guy who is, who tends to get on his soapbox to an annoying degree here and there and uh, for me I feel like he was he dialed it down and this just, just decided to go for broke in terms of making just a fun crazy insane violent movie again
1: and the chief criticism of the savages is that its three leads are vapid and <laughs> by, but but that I think is the the gag in the movie or the the, 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 the what the movie is, is, is railing against uh, is that it's equating American entitlement and self-delusion ah. with the Mexican um, – you know, they're their own. Like every culture has its own self-delusion. So the, the Mexican thing of I'm doing this for my family and, and, and this is what – like they all have <laughs> millions of dollars. Like no one needs to do this to put food on their table anymore, right? So the right. Americans look at it like we can just run – a sanitized, clean, violence-free business. Even though we're doing something illegal, and and the Mexicans are like, you know, we we got to protect our zone and our our family and whatever. And and the 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 the, the incommensurable sort of clash. That's what the savage, because they're constantly, you know, each of them calling each other savages and <laughs> blah blah blah. The, 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 that's if if, if you got to be go into Oliver Oliver Stone as being preachy with this movie, that's what he's being preachy about. But he's doing it in such a tongue-in-cheek kind of way that uh, you know, I mean like I really can't get bent out of shape by it because the movie is way too much more interested in being goofy and satirical and fun than it is at being this scathing cultural document. And to be perfectly honest, I would rather my scathing cultural document be wrapped up in goofy fun (laughs) than in a preachy my worldview in life
4: is far more informed by fiction films than it is by documentaries yeah and i think every character suffers from self-delusion you know and that's I, i didn't feel like i had to take sides at any instance you know and and with with selma Hayek's character she thinks she's in control she's she's this badass and then look what happens you know towards the end there and that's kind of what you know, I liked about it. I liked the fact that you know, everybody was kind of just pathetic you know, to some yeah, the, degree or the one, another.
1: The one character in the movie, Salma Hayek's daughter, right. is at least the one character that knows what she wants. Mm-hmm. Like, no one else seems to really get it, but she's like, I just don't want to be anywhere near any of you people. <laughs> that's, that's her thing, <laughs> which I kind of thought was funny, but she's kind of a non-character. In the and
4: movie. there are people who are going to have that response to the movie. You know, because these characters aren't always pleasant to hang out with, or whatever. You know that they're just all pathetic and heartless and, yeah, and selfish.
1: Stone-puff rape and rape on screen yeah. for no for for no real reason. Yeah. Like the, there was no reason for Benicio del Toro to whip out his cell phone and he say, was oh, by the gross. way.
3: When <laughs> you don't need <laughs> to make it more gross. He's already <laughs> terrible. <laughs> well, skeevy, I think is the word. Right? <laughs> he does that
4: so well here. He
1: does well. I I love that guy. Even no matter how whacked he is, like even when he's in fear and loathing in Las Vegas, and he's got all these like rolls of fat, and he's just being a, a monster, he's riveting. <laughs> for riveting. some like, reason, he's I, easily the best. I just
4: for some reason the image of him in uh, somewhere just came into my mind. <laughs> like he just shows up oh, right, because he's in the elevator. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just shows up for no reason. Just like says one thing. And that's it. Like, hey, what's up? <laughs> And and if there's one thing that's hard to buy Benicio del
1: Toro as is the relatively unempowered intern he plays in Swimming with Sharks at the oh, beginning. Yeah. It's like I don't buy
4: that guy as an intern. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Well, yeah, no, I savages. I recommend it. You know, and uh, I'm just curious to see what uh, you know if what Stone is going to do next. In uh, in in light of the you know the success he's had with this movie, especially critically, because I feel like you know with with a lot of his more recent work, W World Trade Center, Wall Street, you know, not a lot of people have been high up with Stone for quite a while. So um, yeah, that's about it for the what we watch segment, and uh, I think we can go ahead and uh, movie move movie right along. Well, that was weird. <laughs> move right along to our director of the episode, Lars von Trier. When you're down and troubled and might sacrifice yourself,
0: maybe you are the Antichrist.
4: You've got melancholia Oh, you're a dancer in the dark Grace the towns Of Dogville and Manderley
0: Chaos reigns You just call up his name And you know He'll direct a film. It won't be boring. No no no. But it will be dark. The
4: kingdom or the boss of it all. The vice of king of Avant God. But he's funny, I swear he is. He's Lars von Trier. Lars von Trier was born north of Copenhagen. His mother considered herself a communist, while his father was a social democrat. And interestingly enough, both were committed nudists. His parents did not necessarily allow for much room in their household for feelings, religion, or enjoyment and also sort of refused to make any rules for uh, the children with kind of complex results for von Trier's personality and development. He began making films at the age of 11 after receiving a Super 8 camera as a gift and uh, continued to be involved in independent movie making throughout his high school years. Then in 1979, he was enrolled in the National Film School of Denmark, where he was then dubbed by his peers as von Trier. In 1983, he graduated with the 57-minute Images of Liberation film short film which became the first Danish school film to receive a theatrical release. His first series of films was does, was dubbed The Europe Europe Trilogy and each varied in style. The first, The Element of Crime, was a highly stylized serial killer crime drama which won a technical award at Cannes. His next film was an even darker science fiction epidemic film, aptly titled Epidemic. And then he completed the Europe Trilogy in 1991 with Europa, also known as Zentropa. Shortly thereafter, him and his collaborating producer founded the movie production company Zentropa Entertainment. And the reason for doing this was to achieve financial independence and to have total creative control. Now, Europa will be the first film we discuss, and, uh, before we sort of go around and do a roundtable discussion and give our overall impression of Von Trier, and then segue into our discussion of Europa, I wanted to play this voicemail we got.
2: This is Zach from the, uh, Film Jive podcast, and I'm calling in regards to your, uh, upcoming episode on Lars Von Trier, a a filmmaker that I quite admire, and, uh, certainly a, a provocative one, uh. I've probably only seen maybe about half of Vontrier's filmography, but I've, i am yet to see a film that I didn't, uh, admire or sort of respect in some way. I never feel cheated or underwhelmed after watching his, one of his films. There's always a very gratifying and rewarding experience on some level, even though his films aren't casual watches, but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. A couple things I love about Lars is his sort of humanistic eye and how he uses that to approach different kinds of stories. And I think with that approach, he's able to treat everything with a real sensitivity, which I think keeps him connected with his work. Everything feels just as real for the filmmaker as, as it does in the audience in that very same moment. And um, you get a real sense of that. Um, I also love his sort of revolving aesthetic experimentation you know, no two films really look the same, and, and he's a filmmaker who's dabbled in all kinds of genres, comedies, musical, television, film noir, period dramas, and end of the world films. so he he's definitely nearly tried just about everything and uh, unlike some people who think Lars can be a bit misogynistic, I, I consider his female leads to be very strong in willful women, even though they do undergo a dra- great deal of abuse. I think he's a director who is able to take an actress and sort of nearly reshape them to where they give an a, por- a performance that we've never seen before. Something like Kirsten Dunst, who I had kind of given up on until Melancholia. And Charlotte Gainsbourg is always brilliant. And Then you have performances like Nicole Pitt, Kidman, Bjork, and Emily Watson all giving, I think, career-defining performances in, in the films that they started for Lars. Um, so he's a filmmaker that... I haven't seen enough of his work yet, but he's certainly somebody I respond to with his melodramatic material. And, um, I'm really excited to check out, hear your guys' episode. Uh, say hello to Kurt for me, even though I never talked to him, but I love <laughs> listening to him and the rest of the gang over at row three each week. Uh, but thanks for taking my call. Keep up the great work. Uh, talk to you guys later. See ya.
4: All right. Thanks a lot, Zach, for that awesome voicemail on the, and Lars von Trier there. Good thoughts all, all around. Um, so I'll just sort of start off by saying um, I think it's kind of an obvious statement to make, but Lars von Trier is kind of a provocateur. Um, he comes across as a guy who doesn't mind being hated or loved. I think he sometimes might even prefer to be hated. Uh, he, you know. I think he would respond even more uh, drastically to someone who might have indifference towards his films, but he seems to create films about self-sacrifice more or less that, you know, some consider to be kind of harsh and cold and, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of his work, you know, especially something like Dogville, was considered to be, you know, anti-American. And uh, I think, Yet few people can argue that they're not at least original in the way he tells his stories. I mean, you know, we will probably bring this up later, but just to, to I I don't really consider him to be all full of hate and misogyny. Uh, And, you know, people consider him to be self-aggrandizing and indulgent and only creates art that provokes. But for me, and I've said this in the past towards, you know, other divisive directors that... Art that provokes is far more interesting to me, even when it fails, rather than something you know run of the mill or conventional. And there are occasions when you know the idea of you know not necessarily celebrating uh, nihilism, but just depicting it, doesn't really work for me. But I don't get an impression at all from even a film like Dogville with the way it plays out as being you know uh, nihilistic per se. And I, and, and I realize he sort of lives for that visceral reaction to where I can see how people might think of him as being manipulative. And, as you know, for me, the majority of all of his works always have some kind of intense reaction that aims for both feeling and intellect. And I mainly respond to that with most movies in general. I sort of gravitate towards wanting some kind of emotional connection or response, even if it's sometimes brought out in manipulative ways. But I don't think he does that. I think every, you know, I I sense he kind of wants to capture like the paradoxical nature of humanity. And and he's very critical of that um, from, and he wants to capture that from a more historical standpoint with Europa to a more intimate and personal experience between two sisters in Melancholia. Uh, He wants to sort of critique fundamentalism. And, you know, I know that maybe his metaphorical approach at times is too on the nose because there are moments like, you know, the chaos reigns moment in Antichrist that can make me roll my eyes a little bit. But I just love the juxtaposition he presents in both, you know, a visual sense and with his themes. Um, With Europa, which we're going to get to after we sort of wrap things up, uh, with our overall feelings, but I, I like the idea of filtering German history through something like Kafka meshed with a, you know, Casablanca-esque love story here. So I like that, um, intention that he has with this particular movie. And it's rare that we also get the experience from a male protagonist. So, um, I, overall, I had a good response to Europa, although, that sort of emotional investment that I've gotten from other films of his wasn't there for me for this particular film. But um, let's move on. Kurt, what are your thoughts?
1: Well, let me, let me back up and, and come at it from where I come into Lars von Trier. Mm-hmm. Um, the first thing I saw from Lars von Trier was at a rep cinema when I was in university, uh, and it was The Kingdom Series, so they they even though that was shot for Danish TV, they showed it in the cinema. So you watched, like, I think it's five hours if you watch it without break and whatever. So they just showed it. Um, They showed the first one, and I think it was fairly new. So this would be about ninety four, and. So that was my in, and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm this guy. Like he owns my ass. It it was like uh, everything about the kingdom worked for me. It's it's pure genre filmmaking. It's sticky. It's kind of like a documentary. It's kind of whatever. And then almost immediately after, I saw Breaking the Waves, uh, which just we'll talk about it later. But that movie just melted me. Like it, it it was so. Devastatingly emotional on me, uh, and then it was like I gotta see as much of this guy's work as I possibly can. So every every film that I've ever seen by Lars von Trier, I've seen in the cinema. Hmm. Like I've never seen him on DVD. <laughs> I mean, I've watched them. Like I when I rewatched them, I watched them. Even Zentropa, which I only saw um, for the first time four months ago, was or whatever it was in the lead up to melancholia the local cinema here did a Lars von Trier retrospective and so they showed a good chunk of his films and and I'd never seen Centropa so I'm like now's the time because that's the I, I'd always heard that's the one that has every film technique under the sun so I want to see that on the on a on cinema
4: screen you're so um, lucky <laughs> I would yeah, love to see it on the big screen
1: well I mean, I, I I still found it very affecting when I rewatched it on the the Criterion mm-hmm. DVD. But um, that is like a true like movie. All of von Trier's movies, even though he he had his dogma stuff and mm-hmm. and um, uh, you know with all natural lighting and no all sound must be diegetic and all these different rules and whatever. I don't think he ever actually. I have not seen The Idiots. Is that the only one that he made that's actually? following those yes. rules. and but,
3: technically it breaks a couple.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's Lars von Trier in a nutshell. Like, yeah, he, he lays the hammer of this is what I'm going to do and then he, he just violates Sub- subverts it. Subverts it, yeah. Very piercingly. Like mm-hmm. None of it is by accident. Or if it's by accident, it's that accident is considered and it rewraps around each other. The guy's very smart. Um, definitely. So my, my thing with von Trier is I've never seen a bad... Lars von Trier film. Now, I've not seen The Boss of It All, which is the one where he had, like, the computer pick hm. all the shot angles, like, which is bizarre. Oh, that is um, weird. And I've not seen Element of Crime or um, uh, Epidemic or The Idiots. So the, there, there are my von Trier holes. I've seen everything else on the big screen, either on its original release or, or in some sort of rep fashion. And... um yeah, I, I, Zentropa I love because it's not – it isn't like what you associate. What I associate is that sort of raw pain up on screen. Z, uh, Zentropa is like is exactly the opening scene of Zentropa. It is an act of cinematic hypnotism and you just sort of are mesmerized. Yeah. I always get sleepy when I watch Zentropa. I yeah. think I may have almost fallen asleep – when I watched it in the theater and I almost fell asleep again when I watched it. And it's not because the movie's boring. It's just mm-hmm. structured like that. And the thing I love about Zentropa uh, is because I'm like the world's biggest Guy Madden film or fan. And this feels like a Guy Madden movie. Oh, yeah, um, totally. Like, it, it feels like, oh, my God, this this could almost be it has the same sort of goofy sense of humor and the the weird casting like eddie constantine and um mm-hmm. in the in the movie and and yeah and i just i love the fact that you know i i tend to associate von trier with a more documentary kind of handheld style like breaking the waves right and, and the kingdom hospital and, and or and um you know uh, even even um Uh, Melancholia and uh, Antichrist, even though they have very splashy special effects and things in them, they still have that kind of – you're in a room with Von Trier and he's hand-holding the camera while while it's being filmed, whereas Zentropa is like an absolute constructed – Marvel, it's it's quite amazing. Like that is, there's a lot of fucking creativity coming out of this movie, just in its construction. It's it's and when I when I saw it just a few months ago, and then when I rewatched it, I do. I I stand back and I'm like, wow, this is, and this would have been the like, this would have been closer to the first like. I don't know how many people saw those other two films, like *Epidemic* and *Element of Crime*, are very small movies. Whereas this movie's got huge sets, and 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 it's just crazy. It's like a big, bold film experiment um, that, of course, would it won an award at Cannes, not a very big one, but it, it won something. Um, and yeah, I, I'm I'm excited to talk about this movie because. I love it. I just absolutely love it because it's not what I even think of as being Von Trier, even though it's kind of a Rosetta Stone to almost everything that he does later.
4: Good point. All right. Matt, what's your take? Uh,
3: Almost opposite of Kurt, I have never seen a Von Trier movie in a cinema. Uh, I started with Antichrist, which I caught and was – horrified with in the best way in the best way Mm -hmm. absolutely, Uh, and didn't really think about it again until melancholia came out and i caught it on a video on demand and those two movies are the only two movies i've ever seen that have given me anxiety attacks that they affect me so profoundly (laughs) and so i needed to know who this person was and so i went all the way back to the beginning and watched in order and uh i feel like von trier should have been a super villain except (laughs) he he, somewhere along the line and i'll point it out because you it didn't go into your little blurb in 1988 he made a tv version of uh media the euripides play oh okay yeah um and i feel like that is the touchstone from which all of the rest of his movies kind of spill out Hmm. it has elements of uh of the dogma stuff because it's very handheld and dirty and it has some of like the tableau stuff that you'll see later in Antichrist or even Dancer in the Dark has a lot of that. Sure. Um, and that is where like I feel his fascination with female protagonists suffering either by their own hands or the hands of society comes from. I think it all stems from that play which is what that's all about really. Um, so looking at Europa specifically, and I can't call it Zentropa, I'm sorry. It won't, it's not gonna happen. <laughs> um, that, I feel, is the last old Von Trier movie before he found his fixation. So I feel like the Europe trilogy is the super villain Von Trier that was like super arty and really esoteric and he found the humanism in media and that's where it's spread out into the later films. Cause once you go into the kingdom or breaking the waves is where you get more of the humanistic take.
4: Yeah. Well, I'm going to have to check out this, uh, media TV movie. He did. I, I wish I'd, uh, caught it in time, but I might even watch it since it's, you know, pr- it's relatively short. And, uh, it's you know got Udo Kier, so how can you go wrong? And what a shock! Udo almost Kier,
1: every, yeah, almost every almost every film um, that he's ever made has Udo Kier in it.
4: Yeah, well, that sounds interesting. Um, yeah, I think. Well, we, I mentioned this before, you know, before we started officially recording. I think the most interesting part of the, of this overall discussion is going to be the fact that um, I actually really really like b- both films we're going to talk about. Uh, but they're they're also not problem free, you know. I, I they wouldn't necessarily crack the top three. I th- but good lord, I f- I feel like Europa is just gorgeously shot. Um, I was kind of reminded of what, to a lesser extent, but to what you know what Soderbergh did with his Kafka kind of movie, where he sort of like tried to you know integrate just an old fashioned s- style into. You know the, this sort of meta take on, um, on on a you know historical event. Well, with with Soderbergh, it was all just about the uh, you know inception, the creation of of Kafka's The Metamorphosis, told in this sort of surreal Brazil kind of way. Uh, but here, you know, von Trier decides to you know go back to you know uh, World War Two and you know the the uh the sort of integration of you know film noir here done von Trier style is some it's kind of, it's breathtaking to experience it's it is very hypnotic it is very dreamlike and um you know at times i was thinking lynch uh but you know th- this again th- but i th- it's one of those experiences and i'm not necessarily going to even go to the extreme of saying uh, style over substance because there is definite substance here. It didn't necessarily strike me immediately because I was like kind of more focused on the fact. Maybe it was again expectations because I'm like, wow, von Trier did this because it's not what I'm used to from this guy, which is also refreshing and wonderful at the same time. Because um, he's you know he's he's clearly a guy who loves you know uh philosophy and, and and movies and sort of critiquing you know specific character traits or personality and you know put, putting that in the in the setting of World War II and you know part of me wants to automatically jump aboard this idea of cultural ignorance and blind idealism <laughs> like you know making another thesis statement about America's involvement with World War II and you know sort of Looking at the idea of getting involved with, you know, w- any war or communism is is futile. And but on one hand, I didn't necessarily empathize with its lead character because he. W- I mean, at first he is, and he's even stated explicitly as an idealist. But then he kind of becomes very passive, and then by the you know the end, again we sort of get that sort of comeuppance that von Trier likes to throw at us with his protagonist. Well, it is
1: it's. I mean to be really blunt, it's America in, in World War II. It, it, they they start off mm-hmm. idealistic, with good intentions, not involved, and then they drop nuclear bombs. Um, like, I mean that's. I mean to me, I think we're coming at it backwards. Looking at Zentropa from the point of view of what he did after, it's right. it's probably more interesting to say that this movie was Lars von Trier throwing his ball sack on the table and say, you know what. I like Michael Curitz, I like Alfred Hitchcock, I like Orson Welles, and mm-hmm. I, I, I like the technical side of their filmmaking, and I want to do all of that in one movie. Like, there's a shot when the characters have sex on the train set. Yeah, that's the best, that's the best shot
4: ever. in the whole movie. <laughs> and, uh,
1: are you talking about the sex on the train set, or the when the camera pulls out of the train set and goes all the way out of the house? Mm-hmm. And into a train, and then the train leaves. It's like the reverse shot of the Through the Window in Citizen Kane. Um, like, yeah. that is, like, I, I, when I saw that in the movie, my jaw was on the floor. I'm like, oh, for sure. holy shit, that's technical filmmaking. There's another scene later, which has got to be one of the most interesting uses of, I don't know if it's rear projection, but they project the, um, her Hartman, like the the, the, the railroad patriarch. hmm commit suicide in the bathtub oh, and so yeah. they project him on the water and then drop the blood in as he slashes his wrist. That is fucking awesome. It's not realistic. It's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> like it's, it is. Like, as a technique point of view, it is mind-blowing. I'm like, I've never seen
3: that before. Like, never seen that before. <laughs> so I was, I was impressed. Uh, the thing that strikes me the most about his commentary on World War II, which is essentially what this is, mm-hmm. is that all of us now engage in world war ii through film mostly either documentaries or newsreel footage or fiction taking place during it and europa feels like a dream of someone who's never seen real life and only knows movies (laughs) and puts together reality from movies and uh i feel that's where his protagonist comes from because he's really anachronistic he's like the America who didn't fight World War Two, because there are Americans in the film that were there and are still occupying and they're not idealistic. They're as corrupt no, as everyone else. Pretty,
2: yeah, yeah. Uh,
3: but this character doesn't have... He didn't live through that. It's all stuff that he appropriated through media just like we do and comes in there with his own idealistic perceptions about... World War Two and gets injected into that. And that's where I feel like the romanticism is another von Trier. Like, he presents as very serious, but is definitely not meant to be. It is the birthright that we earned about World War Two because we didn't fight World War Two. We can be romantic about it because it's all through our movies and media now. But the people who were there, there's nothing romantic about that. Uh, it's just opportunities for these people trying to put wow. their lives back together.
1: And it is fascinating and i don't think any of uh, von Trier's movies do this to his protagonist in that everyone wants a piece or wants to mm-hmm. use him that opening sequence where the guy from the kingdom the the the, the main doctor from the kingdom uh, Ernst Hugo Jergard mm-hmm. um He's the uncle, right? Right. Yeah. When he's walking them through. And they're, they're walking in place, which I love. There's lots of walking in place in front of the uh, rear projection in this yeah. movie. So they're walking on the spot. But, and he's giving them the whole spiel. And like, he's actually picking his pocket as, as that scene goes by. Every ridiculous scene. The, the uniform is the property of the company, which will be paid for by the employee. And then the, the most ridiculous scene in the entire movie, and this is saying something, is the medical exam. He just sits on the scale, <laughs> and the doctor <laughs> removes the weight. Okay, he's perfect. That'll be my usual fee. Like, I mean that that whole thing, and it just keeps going. Like everyone, like Udo Kier and the the the, the girl, the Harriet, whatever, and um, like ev- all the people, like the um, Eddie Constantine, the the military guy, the the spy, the, the the werewolf guy that's recruiting everyone. Everyone wants to use him, and he's just this sort of ping-pong for, for right. a good chunk of the movie. And and the movie actually says, you know, be, because he refuses to take a stand, he's the greatest villain of all. Like, he actually fucks everything up by doing nothing. Uh, yeah, I
4: guess Von Trier, again, <laughs> actively hates indifference or, you, you know, just someone who is kind of naive to the point of, like, you know, I don't he doesn't intentionally cause, you know, harm, but in a way, by being who he is and sort of being this empty vessel who for the most part doesn't have like uh you know the the, the kind of emotional response or doesn't take sides that he's sort of uh you know, crucified in a way for it by the end. I just I think it's one of those things with me that sometimes I have a disconnect with that uh approach to having this empty vessel, naive lead character. Um I mean, obviously he's fill like he's filling it with all these great ideas and this amazing imagery that it doesn't you know, crush the film for me in some way, you know, at all. It's just something that, um, you know, the, the the sort of the idea of just creating a meditation on how little, you know, foreigners know of the lands that they attempt to aid in, you know, which is obviously very important even now with Iraq and all that. But um, I, it, it's just strange. I mean, von Trier, you know, it's kind of feels like uh, a guy who's outside looking in on America and for th- for most of the film I felt like I was outside looking in on on this world without actually being completely immersed into it despite like you know being in awe of so many individual scenes and moments and just the techniques of it all to where by the end when you know Obviously, we spoil everything he uh you know he dies i didn 't necessarily have that you know kind of uh, you know like that emotional intensity that i 'm used to from a von Trier movie yeah. and that could just have to do with expectations again
1: I think that he gets away first off this is i again i 've not seen the boss of it all, which is the actual von trier comedy and i 'm not going to compare it although i 'll talk about dear Wendy later um which he wrote but didn 't direct uh hmm. but this movie is his funniest movie. Like There is tons <laughs> uh, of humor. Having I mean,
3: seen The Boss of it all, it's still his funniest movie. Okay, Trust me, there, you're not missing a whole lot.
1: Exactly. I, not, not surprising. Um, but this movie has so much humor. I mean, I talked yeah. about the sequence where he goes through, but the fact that um, Von Trier stages the climax with the, uh, with the uh, conductor exam Like, that's like a classic (laughs) screwball comedy trope. It's like how I did not expect when I'm sitting and I hear the, you know, dulcet tones of Max von Sadao hypnotizing me on the train tracks at the beginning. I didn't expect this to be like Three's Company at the end. Like, I mean, (laughs) like, it's just hilarious that that he he earns it like he totally gets there with these just like there's bombs wired up and his girlfriend is kidnapped and everything. And they're like. Now you will make the bed three times in quick order. Like, I just, that, <laughs> it cracks me up. Like that, there's, and that's the one thing that I think that people don't appreciate about Lars von Trier films enough is that despite the fact that they're emotionally devastating and that they're very button pushing, like they're unabashed yeah. in how they push people's It can buttons, be exhausting. <laughs> they're very funny, too. They're very funny. Like, that Chaos Rain thing became. Um, like a film festival sort of meme for a long time. (laughs) Like there were like people wearing t-shirts and stuff because that's funny. It's, 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 it's not meant to be angry, serious. It's meant like Von Trier has this black irony where he self deprecates. Well, he does self deprecate on himself in real life and gets booted out of can because like when he didn't win for, for, um, Europa, he just he 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 gave the jury the finger and left. But I mean, that's not him being angry. Like that's 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 what he does. And the 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 Nazi thing with with melancholia and everything else. Like that's he has these intense bursts of self-deprecating humor that play out in the press, but they play right out in his films. And I I think that's wonderful. Like I, why shouldn't a movie be able to be? devastatingly funny at the same time as it is um, emotionally heartrending. Like, I find a lot of ons movies uh, get so ridiculous or get so emotional that I they, they start to get ridiculous mm-hmm. even as they're still working on me like I, I mean this is not even when he's trying to joke around I'm like like dancer in the dark for me is the movie that like it is so far it goes so far by the end <laughs> that it, it it's 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 just it 's amusing to me, like even as i 'm like a wreck i 'm still highly amused that he 's like, Oh, you think you can take this much here 's some more
4: did you, you say you got you got were
1: it? did Here's you say you were more. erect or a wreck uh, a wreck <laughs> okay
4: sorry <A> wreck <laughs> um,
1: I, I, I can say i can say i 've never been erect okay <laughs> von trier movie, that's that's not something like sex in a von trier movie is not sexy ever. no no no
3: no <laughs> well, no 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 we'll, we'll talk i'm about gonna it i sure. would argue against that when we get to breaking the way i will say that like
4: von trier is really good at cross-cutting and you know whether 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 his juxtaposition is meant to be ironic I still love it. I still love the cross-cutting between the seduction and the suicide. More like that's one. That could be one of my favorite von Trier moments. Period. And that's that's also one of those you know things. I mean, the whole, obviously I just can't get enough of how amazingly the you know amazing the cinematography is in this movie. But that's something to see on a big screen would be wonderful as well. But sex I, always equals death in yeah. the von Trier movies. That that's his. If if
1: if there's one big theme that seems to mm-hmm. be um, Mandalay. during the sex scene someone dies um, Antichrist during the sex <laughs> scene somebody dies like if if someone's having sex in a Von Trier movie someone is being killed off screen <laughs> it's like a rule
4: yeah whereas Cronenberg is all about the duality of man when, when it comes to sexuality sex is
1: living death in a Cronenberg movie. right yeah. um, but the the uh, the other, before I forget, I, I want to mention two other just like goosebump awesome moments when the two main characters in Zentropa propose, and then they turn, and then the, they backlight the church. Oh, yeah. That scene is like I get mm. goosebumps during that scene. It is so good. And then the another different church sequence when he's walking in, and the church has no ceiling, and it's snowing. Inside the church, it's like, um, who? It's like fuck you, Joe. Right? Like this is how it's done. <laughs> you know? Like <laughs> I, I just, I like when von Trier gets pretty. Like he, he was being again. You're never sure how much he's joking, how much right. he's serious. But he was saying that he, he, re, the one thing he regretted in Melancholia, which is probably his most personal film, is how good it looks. Which is a mm-hmm. weird criticism to make. But von Trier movies, even. Even things when he's hand held, hand and natural light, they do have a very resonating, you know, good lookedness, like a, a, a craft, a, a highly honed craft sense. I I, I, I don't, I don't know how else to explain it. I, the guy knows what images to pick. And- well, I think
4: with breaking the waves, it feels more organic, and here it feels very controlled. To where, like, I even think that's exactly what uh, a lot of the actors sort of bring up his you know, transition from this to breaking the waves as being like Von Trier wanted to lose control. He wanted things to play out in a very naturalistic way with the actors just sort of going on instinct to the point where they don't even have marks or, you know, just let's take a camera and follow them around. And here it's the complete opposite, which is incredible to see and incredible to see that, you know, I guess sometimes for me, maybe it takes a while to process his intent where, you know, like, am I supposed to, you know, there's moments of melodrama and there's moments of irony. And then, and then obviously the the moment when, you know, she hits the train off as she's being seduced, I'm laughing. <laughs> you know, yep. so there's just, it, it, it feels like, you know, you're going through so much all at once at times with his movies. And here you can tell just visually, you know, you, you, clearly I, I even think I read somewhere that, you know spielberg loves this movie because you know implemented that uh you know that touch of red in, in schindler's list because of this movie um and i thought of dark city too with just sort of that you know film noir in a completely different setting well
1: i mean i, I think it came out first but another
3: the really element of crime like, is, awesome. oh go
4: ahead sorry uh, the, the
1: the francis ford coppola draft Dracula has oh, yeah. a yeah, lot of yeah. this, like you know, you're not in a real world, but it's just fantastic to watch this c- construct of cinema. Like again, Guy Madden's whole filmography is like
3: this, and I, I like it. So it was kind of interesting. But sorry, go ahead, Matt. What were you going uh, The element of crime has a lot of that dark city, like super drenched noir. Everything mm. looks rusted and awful and terrible all the time. I heard it's very uh,
4: sepia toned. Yeah. That
3: one. It, 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 it makes uh, it makes the kingdom look normal. And the oh, kingdom wow. is already orange. <laughs> uh, but speaking to control, I think it's interesting that this movie comes after Epidemic, which you know, haven't seen, but Von Trier plays Von Trier as a screenwriter writing a movie about a character played by Von Trier. It's like the worst implication of control where he just has to be everything. Right. Isn't and that what Soderbergh really... did with uh, Schizopolis? <laughs> It doesn't really work for von Trier because hmm. I feel like he doesn't bring a lot to the table when he's right starring and directing. Like he's he can't get in outside of his own headspace enough to make nuance with that oh. idea.
1: I love in Europa when von Trier comes in as the like sneering Jude Passy yes. who just hates everyone. Like he walks in, he's like, "I hate you all." <laughs> just, there you go. That's that's. I'm sure in the act of writing, directing, that – I mean, Paul Bettany apparently tells a story of working with Von Trier in that you you just hate him on certain days. Like you just (laughs) cannot stand him. And you get that sense of of he's kind of – but that make it obviously makes his movies work, but um, it's funny that he would again this high self awareness I mean maybe it's narcissism, I don't know, but this high self awareness for him to cast like he's almost breaking character. If you watch his facial expressions, maybe he's just not that good of an actor. but <laughs> if you watch his facial expressions when he' comes in as that Jew, there's this incredible like fourth wall breaking. As mm-hmm. this character comes in. And it again, it's funny to me. It's very, very funny. Because he does look like a little punk. Like I, At that point, I mean, what was he, like 31 or 32? Yeah. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I mean, to be able to make a movie of the size of Zentropa at, at, in your early 30s is yeah. a major coup for anyone, right? This is like P.T. Anderson making Magnolia when he was 27 <laughs> or whatever. It's like, holy shit, you're in your... 20s or early 30s and you get to do this like awesome uh and and he has this yeah he has this kind of hate relationship with it you can see it right there on screen
4: but i think a lot of people just have that um sort of confusing or uh, automatic response of like well what's his deal in terms of does does he hate america you know, why is he cruel? To, not necessarily like, why is he cruel on set? Or, you know, why do all the women in, in his films go through these, you know, horrible struggles and and, and like experience these nonstop tumultuous environments? And I, I don't I don't necessarily like it's one of the it's, it's one of those things where a lot of people will tend to think. Well, you know, I've seen this director in interviews, or I've seen how he talks, or I've seen how he is, or I've heard things about him to where they automatically project, like, oh my god, Lars von Trier is this complete asshole. Why am I going to bother seeing his movies when that sort of, like, asshole vibe comes across in certain instances? But I just don't... That's something well, like if he if the he movie is an works that makes great movies. Well yeah. I mean, that's, like I, <laughs> that's fine. But, that's exactly but what I'm saying.
1: Here's the thing. When people this is this is what bothers me about people that don't like or seem to walk down this road with Lars von Trier is they always say like how horribly he is to the women or or, or how anti American he is. He's anti everything like, I, I mean like he's like how can you how can you say the Germans are portrayed in a positive light in this movie right you know what I mean how can you say that the the, the one Jew character is portrayed everyone is fair game like it's like saying well he puts um Emily Watson's character through hell and breaking the waves well he puts stone's cards character through hell too sure because people are like so focused on this one thing that they're like gonna judge him on that sliver it's like no he is but, I mean, every now and again, he puts a healing character in, and I, 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 I want to talk when we get to breaking the waves and 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 I guess um, dancing in the dark about his healing characters because he can do that well as well. But for the most part, people tend to only see what they want to see um, when he picks at things and picking on America to to someone from Denmark is like picking on McDonald's when you're talking about fast food. It's <laughs> it's the biggest biggest animal in the room like why sure. would you why would yeah, you go I, we're, we're gonna we're gonna pick on Zimbabwe today like I, I mean no I wanna, of course you go after the big one
3: I want to point out that he's never been to America and probably never will because he's deathly afraid of flying uh, so he has no like actual perspective he just I think that's why people get, get up in arms he about it. No,
1: he has no perspective on World War 2 either yeah, that, that's what sure. makes his movies I, awesome I is that he he's actually giving you his personal like media Europe wash of what he, what America has
3: projected to him. That is art. Like you do not yeah. need to go to America. I'm not saying that he does. I'm saying, yeah. but like it is the one, it is the country that like every part of world cinema has an opinion about. Mm-hmm. Cause if you look at, if you look at the kingdom or boss of it all, or even the idiots, there's a lot of like s- remarks at Denmark, but they go over everyone's head because nobody knows anything about Denmark. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly.
1: And exactly.
4: like a lot of you know, a lot of his moments where he he says something ridiculous, accidentally or not, they get publicized, and then people want to harp upon you know like oh I can't believe he said that or I can't believe you know it, it, it's it, it is a lot of projecting, and I realize that's sort of kind of a instinctual response at times to certain things that are off putting, and he makes off putting films which don't, don't bother me though. This is why, particularly the kingdom. And to a
1: degree, Europa, he reminds me a lot of Hitchcock, mm. like it, to the point of if he, it, it, in front of every episode, or is at the back of every episode. It's the back of, of the every kingdom. Episode. He comes out in the tux and he talks a little bit. He that feels like the relationship that Hitchcock had with his audience when he was making films. Like he would actually be like, "Let me tell you what I'm going to do." Like I, I I love that about him. He he. I forgot where I was going with this, but whatever. Uh, he just has that. I this is what I do, and I don't really give a crap what you think. And I mean, who more than Hitchcock had a like, you know, pitch black dark streak down yeah. his filmography, and 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 uh, Zentropa uses riffs of. I know the artist got in like there was this little thing with um, Kate Novak or whatever getting pissed off that the artist used. Uh, Bernard oh, Hermann's right. score, but mm-hmm. but Zentropa might as well have Vertigo's score.
4: Like it, it is a very Vertigo-driven score in the movie. Um, yeah, and I guess since you brought up Vertigo, I mean it. It does feel like a you know a dream. It is you know, and yep. like the, I mean, obviously it's sort of brought up with like a you know hypnotic, um, you know narration courtesy of Max of uh, Max von Sydow, but. I, I, it does feel like, you know, this character is sort of just moving from one place to another. And, it, like, and and when, you know, at one moment someone says to him, God doesn't forgive those who are lukewarm. And in a way that's, it reminds me of something of, like, uh, defending your life where you can't be full of fear. You know, you have to, you have to own up to yourself. You have to sort of put all the cards on the table and just... Throw caution to the wind. You have to have conviction in yourself, and I really respond to that. But it also feels, again, like like a, a dreamlike um, presentation filtered through someone who's in love with early cinema, <laughs> which is can wonderful. I, can for I me.
1: can I stop for you for a second? Oh yeah, go and ahead. Just say that I love very much that that Albert Brooks has penetrated this broadcast twice <laughs> now. Uh, any any Fine by anyone me. that brings up defending your life. Is like my favorite person. Yay! <laughs> so we could start a fan club
4: because <laughs> I, 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 I just I love most of his movies. So, but yeah, no, I just, just just got that feeling. And sometimes there are certain movies where, and I think this was even brought up with uh, when some people bring up "Take This Waltz," how like things are sort of spelled out to you, or the theme of the movie is spelled out to you through character dialogue. And there are certainly movies where that. Can bother me, but you know, if 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 Lars von Trier's overall thesis is like you know, just don't be indifferent. Be you know, full of hate. Be full of love. Be full of passion about something. Don't be lukewarm. As you know, and I kind of like that overall sentiment of the movie. um I mean, again, I think it, it sounded, after it rewatching it, I'll-
1: than, uh, it, it sounded better than Carpe Diem, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs>
2: that's that's Lars von
1: Trier's in a nutshell, right? Like, yeah. Uh,
4: and um, it's blunt, you know. Uh, he well, has moments where he's, you know, on the nose, and you know comes no, 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 no. out.
1: Here's why it works. Yeah, some movies have that on the nose,
4: and that's all they've
1: got. Right, but, but his movies have huge blunt, like hammer on the nose. <laughs> um, but they have all of these little eddies of nuance. All going off around it's it's like maybe he hangs on an actor and just gets this awesome bit of emotion that comes out of his actors or or if it was just him thesizing whatever whatever you know if it was just him preaching through his characters because you know like let's be honest everyone in Zentropa is a type um, and and it wasn't until like yeah maybe his later movies that he could move beyond types but. There's so much else going on in the movie that you, I just can't, I can't take him to task for being blunt. Like there's, I don't think there's something wrong, especially if you're making a melodrama. Like well, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, like Douglas Cirque was not praised for being subtle, subtle. right? <laughs> you know, like <laughs> I mean, he he couldn't do certain things, so you do other things in exaggerated form to get a in a roundabout way, and. Uh, but the thing, again, I come back to Zentropa is that he's doing this all with this sense of humor. Like, the movie is friggin' funny. And that endears to me immensely in the same way that something like Sullivan's Travels endears to me and that that movie is
3: yeah, funny. absolutely. Um, and, and- okay, uh, to bring this back around to Hitchcock uh, – There's always the story of Hitchcock telling Truffaut, if you want to make suspense, you tell the audience there's the bomb under the table, and then the people can have whatever conversation they want, right? And I feel like his signposting that don't be lukewarm creates that tension point. So even though there is a bomb, that's really just like a narrative MacGuffin. What matters is this character has to make the choice, and you know that eventually some choice has to be made, and there's your tension point, and then he doesn't, and everyone dies, but – that's where the absurdity comes from not even from the plot mechanics but that it told you what needed to happen and then it didn't despite the fact that it's supposed to every movie yeah. would have a decision made but nope yeah, he's the king of <laughs> subversion I mean, that is
1: good I never thought of it that way but that's, absolutely. that's a really good way of putting it that is funny
4: yeah, he really does that's one of the greatest things like about having a movie podcast movie, but, for yeah. me Like, oh yeah no, this a, this person's going to bring up something awesome right And then I'm going to look at it in a different way. That's why, you know, upon rewatch, I'm going to have maybe even a a stronger response to it. So I'm looking forward to that. Let's move on, shall we? Uh, I'm going to play a clip here that sort of serves as a very appropriate transition from, um, I believe it is a podcast interview from Khan Khan! when uh, uh, Stellan Skarsgård, was talking a little bit about uh, his experience working with Lars von Trier, and I'm going to play that right now as we uh, transition over into
0: breaking the waves. I mean, the first the first film when he cha- had changed his way of working, the first five films he did was extremely they were extremely controlled up to Europe or Zentropa as it's called in the states, um, and he realized after five films that. Being so controlled, sort of uh, deciding every movement, every attitude of the actors uh, took away the life from the film. So he regards his first films as very cold, uh, and I agree with him. So he started on... Uh, uh, Breaking the Waves was the first film where he let the actors lose, and we were allowed to do whatever we wanted, and there was a big sign on the set that said, make mistakes, which is great encouraging for an actor. Uh, but, <laughs> but the thing is also that the roles are so different he 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 writes fantastic roles for women and not so good roles for men so and and the lead is always a woman and i think he was sort of the beginning uh, his earlier films he had more the idea that he could hypnotize the women into do something remarkable and now he realizes more and more that he can let them be very much and there's some fantastic things might happen anyway i love that dude's voice i know i, I do seriously
1: too. love that dude's voice that's why the uh the original Insomnia movie.
4: Mm, awesome.
1: Yeah. Just absolutely.
4: Pilato. He's great. Wanna see I want to see, see, yeah, see more lead roles and not relegated to like, uh, his little uh, stupid little Hollywood blockbuster. Yeah, crap like pirates, And even, and, 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 and even girl with the dragon tattoo. It was like, Oh yep. man, but, uh, yeah. Yep. So von Trier describes this next film. Um, we're going to talk about as a simple love story with true human emotions from people made of flesh and blood. <laughs> Um you know it, it's it's been described as a, another sort of melodramatic documentation of uh you know, passion and religious devotion to the point of exhaustion and you know it is again we we have like a, a more internal conflicts uh m- you know unfortunately de- you know dealing with external uh, issues with with religious fanaticism and as well as the overwhelming erotic obsession to please each other to, um, you know, almost a delusional perspective where pro protagonist best played by Emily Watson believes that, uh, you know, physical love can result in life saving powers and her um, handicapped husband can be healed as a result of what she's doing. And like I said, it's, it's another sort of, you know uh d- brilliant and raw exercise here with with just sort of um coming full f- full force with examining internal conflict and identity um, alteration as a result of either uh, religious devotion or devotion to a, a husband and you know the idea that sacrifice can be seen as salvation and yet still met with degradation <laughs> and and damnation. Uh, but for me what what really makes this movie incredibly special is just how intimate and intrusive it is from the way it's filmed to the uh, specific cuts. and I did something different for for this rewatch. I kept the screenplay nearby. Because what I tend to do with with most of the directors is I just go to the library and type in, you know, the director's name and see what movies are available there. But also this time, oddly enough, the screenplay for Breaking the Waves was available at my library. So it was interesting just to sort of have that nearby as I was rewatching this, too, to sort of compare and contrast. And there were definitely some scenes that I think should have been in the movie that are uh, in the script. But... um, he makes these interesting choices from just you know deciding let's cut here and you know let's have this moment interspersed with something else and you know you expect certain transitions and certain expectations from uh, a movie like this again and uh, despite feeling like overwhelming sadness by what happens, I could still see why people struggle with with some of his films, particularly this one in *Dancer in the Dark because I wouldn't say I feel manipulated by Von Trier's decisions to, you know, deciding, okay, well, this is where these characters are going to wind up. And look how, you know, look how they get there in terms of their flawed choices and how deep down they can go in terms of, you know, losing themselves. But um, it, what, what, what can you say about Emily Watson in this movie? It's just... A full immersion into a character that feels like completely immediate and authentic, and it's God—it's just one of my favorite performances ever. Maybe because she has this well, angelic presence about her. Would
1: you? Would you have bought uh, Helena Bonham Carter was supposed <laughs> to be <laughs> was supposed to be the lead in this movie? I don't think that would have worked down at the last minute. I believe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but this was Emily Watson's first film. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Which is crazy i know. <laughs> when you, or maybe or maybe it 's absolutely appropriate, in that like you she is like fearlessly, yeah. like I need this job, like kind of like everything uh, giving everything like this movie made me immediately fall in love with um, uh, with Emily Watson, and i 've followed her career up and down <laughs> uh, since then, and it 's kind of funny that she you know she 's kind of does mainstream Hollywood stuff every now and again, but she still does the smaller. Uh, arty movies and she's still kind of sort of typecast as the victim most of the time maybe because this movie is just so powerful uh it's, but i want to come back to what yeah. you said earlier and that is the editing in this movie i i don't know of any instance before i saw this movie of watching movies that use jump cuts mm-hmm. the way cuts, he uses right. them like he in a, a normal director would would use like a reverse shot or like an over like a back and forth in a conversation or a cutaway or something whereas he cuts and he doesn't leave the actress but it's it's so clearly a cut in the middle and it's not like just like a like a french new wave jump cut where the actor's here and then they're over there it's just like we we got this far in the scene and then we got this far but it has some emotional effect like i don't Mm -hmm. know how he does it i really don't i think it might be born out of what you just said and that they were like let's just film and see what happens and he just you just keep shaving and shaving until you find that exact right moment to where these scenes or these shots that don't in any way fit together just simply work and there he does it in every film now like that I don't think any of his previous films well at least the couple I've seen before breaking the waves did this but they all do it now *Manderlay*, Dogville Melancholia um Antichrist they all do it now. <laughs> like that's right.
3: I don't know of any other director that does that. Mm-hmm. It's really uh, interesting. It, it's also the first film that has his chapter breaks, which right, up in yes. all of them. And it's interesting to see that the film itself is pretty loose, but there's that formal frame around it and it. each chapter has the most ridiculous pop songs that do not belong awesome, in this movie. Awesome songs. Good, though. Choices. I know they're <laughs> Good choices, they're amazing. Good choices. Perfect when, choices. When uh, I was
1: watching this song when I was watching the movie, uh, just to brush up for it the thing my wife kept coming into the she wasn't interested in watching the movie but every chapter break she'd come in and sing the song and then when you know because they, they only play maybe well they play more than you they play a lot they play like songs. over yeah. a minute of each yeah. of the songs she'd come in and sing the song and then she'd leave <laughs> and then like 25 minutes later she'd come back in,
3: and then she'd leave sorry i didn't mean to interrupt but oh, that nice. struck wow, me as funny To bring it back to Emily Watson, I think the interesting thing is, just like I was saying with Broadcast News, this is an easy character to stereotype, uh, someone who's really wrapped up in their faith, and you're kind of introduced to her as something's wrong with her by the way people are treating her that aren't her husband. And but you're not really told what it is. And so you want to reveal reveals over time that she's like talking to God and answering in her own voice. And so there's the perception that maybe she's crazy. But as the movie goes on, I feel like it reduces that perception more and more and puts the blame on other people right uh in the same way that it eventually became like really extreme in like dogville where that's all that movie is about about how the society creates the mindset that causes people to be self-destructive and uh i think that there's a lot of nuance there especially in like representing religion on film by someone who's professedly a religious uh doesn't have, but has right sampled
1: up. a lot of religions.
3: Yes, mm-hmm. um, so like I, I believe that that's even if you,
1: even if you're a devout Catholic or or, or a devout Muslim, you should. If if you're that faithful, you should damn well sample other religions. Like there's a lot of things to look at, even if you don't believe them. And I I think that's why I like Va- uh, von Trier's movies. I mean, people get upset because he's. Um, What's the word? Uh, it's not blasphemy. He's just – he doesn't put a, a huge uh, – uh, not relevance, reverence on anything. Mm-hmm. Like he, he de-reverences everything. <laughs> so when, when he hits your particular thing, whether you're a patriotic American or a um, devout Presbyterian or whatever, it feels like – this guy's an asshole, but he, 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 he's at least consistent that he kind of hates everything. He's like the best kind of nihilist. Like he, he, he's, he's intelligent. A sensitive
4: nihilist. He's a
1: very sensitive, he's a very sensitive. Yeah. That's what I feel like. Um,
4: And, 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 but the thing is, I guess maybe the button that gets pushed for me is, and it's just a personal response. To you know, to to both dancer in the dark and breaking the waves, uh, I just don't like. Uh, personally, I just don't like it when a, a character just decides that self destruction is the way to go, or the, just just the point of giving up, or just saying, "Well, th- I'm doomed towards this. There's no escape." She's There's not no- though. She's but transcending.
1: She's yeah, constantly her- heading to. I, I never felt. Once in the movie, even whatever pain she goes through, she – I mean the only times when um, when Emily Watson is punished mm-hmm. is when she's doing nothing. If she's okay. walking, well. she's always walking towards transcendence. The The only times – and that's the times when she starts speaking in her god voice or whatever is when she's indecisive yeah. or paralyzed by selfishness or whatever you want to call it. But – She's constantly marching, and what I love about this movie is how her grandfather, who's like one of the big muckety mucks in the, I think it's Presbyterian. I'm not sure what branch of Calvinist. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, and I mean, they have that awesome scene of the. uh, It's actually the guy from. from Centropa, He's Stellan Skarsgård's buddy, right? On the on the oil rig. The the main character. Oh, that's right, yeah. Uh, Jean, Jean-Marc Barr. And he's, like, drinking the beer, and then the Presbyterian's drinking the water, and then he crushes the beer can, and, like, the, the guy's <laughs> got the glass of water, and he just smashes the glass. Great von yeah. Trier kind of moment. But it gives you how rigid they are in their faith, which, they're villains. Like, they're flat sure. out villains in the movie, whereas... But he's never shitting on faith. He's basically saying "There, Here are the rules. Faith is wrong. And Emily Watson's pure spiritual faith is noble. Like, I mean, I, I truly believe that... Um, I mean, isn't that what this movie, Dogville, and uh, I guess the idiots are like the... There is trilogy of women that are too... Uh-
3: Noble for planet Earth, so they must be... It's Danzer in the Dark, not...
1: uh, Oh, uh, dance mm -hmm. in the Dark,
3: thank you. Um, Like, yeah, women
1: that are so noble that... um, And and that being said, he not only gives Emily Watson this spiritual, like, Jesus-martyr-level nobility, he also gives um, Katrin Cartridge, 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 who is, until she died at, like, 44, was, like, my favorite character actress. She's in a Mm. ton of Mike Lee movies. She's awesome here. Her analog in Dancer in the Dark is Catherine Deneuve. They're they're like these wonderful, they're like Philip Seymour Hoffman and Magnolia. They're these wonderful, secular, healing, soothing, selfless people that do exist in Lars von Trier movies. People think that these characters don't exist. Thank God. She's wonderful (laughs) in this movie. And I mean, if in anyone else's movie, Catron Cartridge would be the hero of the film. Mm -hmm. But but he has a, a bigger fish to fry. So but I love watching her in this movie. And I mean, Katrin Cartridge, if you follow her filmography, she generally plays awful characters. In fact, if you watch Naked, she's essentially playing oh, Emily yeah. Watson's character. Good point, in, yeah. In, in in the movie. Like she's basically and here they I love that Von Trier lets her, you know, be the strong down to earth totally with it character i just love watching well you need
4: somebody that's me. grounded you know throughout all of this i mean i'm i'm totally all for everything in regards to the internal conflict that you know emily watson has written and how it you know uh conflicts with just the external environment that she's thrust into and how you know that also plays into her being ostracized and I think it's just, you know, oh, I don't want her to go back to, that, to those two guys and meet her fate in a way. And I know it, what it means. I know it's supposed to be transcendent. And that's how she's, um, I guess, redeemed in a way. Or that's how she expects this miracle to finally manifest
3: itself. I guess it's just me going,
4: no, I don't want you to die.
3: But it does. <laughs> yeah. That's the best part, that it ends with that miracle. Sure. Yeah. Like- no, it, it leads to something good. I, I realize that. <laughs> but it does so without, like, giving you that that was the reason. Like, mm-hmm. at the end, Stone Skargard's fine, and there's the heaven bells or whatever. Oh, God. But that's so cool. <laughs> are those, are the the choices she made why that happened? Or is that just part of because we are so locked into our mindset that we we're going to connect those dots? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel like that's the question that they're asking because I feel like these this trilogy is about how easy it is to get locked in these mindsets about why these women will be willing to sacrifice themselves when maybe that isn't the only answer. Oh, that's good. Well I also like the fact that um Von
1: Trier gives the movie a happy ending after everything you've witnessed is is mm-hmm. abjectly horror. <laughs> like he's like yeah, yeah, yeah! All this, you know, Udo Kier chopped her up and yada yada yada, and, and every and she died and blah blah blah. And 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 if she had just waited, Stellan Skarsgård would have been okay. I know, like, you know like, that's was, what drives was, like, me nuts. The whole, and then it's like, <laughs> and then he gives you that because the movie would be fine. The movie would be good if you omitted the last ten seconds. But those last ten seconds make the movie fucking great. <laughs> I,
4: yeah, no, I won't deny that. And,
1: and the other thing is. Von Trier again. You don't know how much he's joking. I think he's joking here, but it is funny to to hear it in his own words. He said at one point when he was writing Dancer in the Dark, he he wanted to do the things that are would be the most ridiculous things in a movie. He wanted like every art movie, like the 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 noble, like the 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 um, what's her name, uh, uh, Passion of Joan of Arc, the mm-hmm. Falconetti character or whatever. He wanted to make the most ridiculous version of that possible and see if he would be praised for it. And he was, and he finds that funny. But, I I, I mean, that's what he says. Well,
3: <laughs> I, I feel... That,
1: but he's just a very good filmmaker, so he can actually turn something that all of Von Trier's movies... Like, that's what's funny when, when you're looking at a screenplay. I cannot imagine reading the screenplay to a Von Trier movie because the filmmaking is way more... Than anything else. Like the actors and the filmmaking, like the actual words in his movies are totally besides the point. So I, I can't even imagine what reading of Von Trier screenplay feels like. Because I, I, I do believe he takes all of Von Trier's movies, if you boil them right down to their essence, are ridiculous. <laughs> but they work when he films
4: them. They speaking totally Well, work. Magnolia is ridiculous, and it, exactly. you know, all that works beautifully.
3: Speaking specifically of Dancer in the Dark, the only reason that works is because of the artifice of musical, because sure. it is the worst, like, treacly nonsense where she's got all of these problems exactly. and gets railroaded in a way that is impossible. Well, I know, I know, I know. I mean, David Morris.
1: I love that guy to death. I know, but his character in *Dancer in the Dark*
3: is so ridiculous. Yeah, like, but the the, emo- the raw emotion of putting it in a musical setting is what sells it. Makes it beautiful. Oh, I know
4: agree. those musicals. I mean, we can transition over, but I just those musical sequences are incredible, and the songs. But I mean, incredible because they still kind of look cheap. Yeah, like they do are not <laughs> like they're not
1: MGM. Even close to well, MGM, they're, they're just feasible. not
4: handheld. You know, he put a, yep. he put cameras on uh, stationary cameras for on a tripod for those sequences, and they just they stand out maybe because it, you know he highlights the and, colors more too.
1: Correct me if I'm wrong, but does the movie change aspect ratios? No, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. Okay. Yeah, pretty sure. I, doesn't. I seem to remember seeing it in the theater that it changed aspect ratios, but that could just be a. <sighs>
4: yeah, I feel like it might have. when I, I saw it, it, in the theater. it definitely
1: goes like more colorful, but um, it definitely does that. But uh, it's been a while since I, I didn't get a chance to revisit. Um, didn't get a chance to revisit that one. But I, I adore that movie, particularly that musical number with Peter Stormare on the train. It's 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 so well done. But it, again, I
4: still have that same like with when she's meeting with the lawyer, and we find out you know all that. I'm just like no, <laughs> just I just don't want these characters, and I realize it fits in with the overall theme and sort of what von Trier is. Is going for and making it, you know, his consistent overall general state is breaking the waves 2.0. I mean, it yeah. really
1: is, and I and I think he's like, you know, what? I didn't go far enough in breaking <laughs> the waves. I, I I think I can go further this time. So, and that's what it is. And I find *Dancer in the Dark* to be ridiculous in the best possible way. Yeah. It still works. No, it does. I it know totally. Does. He's manipulating me. I know I'm being everything is the worst form of obvious filmmaker manipulation, but I completely. Um, like, give in to it. I do every time, even though I know. Yeah. Consciously, he's I, yeah, one of same the few here. filmmakers that can do both at the same time.
3: The uh, the best joke in Dance in the Dark* is her Bjork's character says she never watches the last song of a musical because she doesn't want it to end. Right, and the third to last song, uh, the second to last, I guess, is her singing uh, my favorite things from *Sound of Music* in herself, yeah. and it's really beautiful and touching. And then the next to last song, the one where she would walk out on, is her walking to death row. And it's the worst, like, most emotionally bereft song. And mm-hmm. if you leave there, you don't get the catharsis. Like, that movie kind of ends on a happy, tragic note. But if you do the thing that she would do, it ends as the worst possible point where everything is wrong and broken in the world. <laughs> so,
1: so you. you- from a character point of view, there's this meta element of yeah. Movie. I, I, you were her, it has to be deliberate. movie. Yeah, it, it has, has to be delivered, and that's the sort of that's the sort of wankery that that exists. And, and again, it, it's just a bonus it, that that's his version of an Easter egg. Like yeah. You know? yeah.
4: But I still get re- I'm almost like mad at how much I'm crying. <laughs> like God damn you, Lars von Trier! Like when I'm seeing that ending and she's just like screaming and I'm like, come on, d- don't. Most people cut a little bit, or this doesn't have to go on so long. But I, then again, I want to applaud him for his audacity too. So it's like, uh, I'm like, I'm experiencing internal conflict sometimes when I'm watching Lars von Trier. But yet, I love it. I love experiencing well, that's, that. That's
1: the thing. It's funny because when we were talking about these savages, this, this Lars von Trier is just another one of those filmmakers that. All of these contradictions can exist simultaneously when you're watching them, and it, it works. I, and I don't feel like I'm just giving them a pass. Like, I'm honestly getting a reaction to the film, a good reaction, like a reaction that I don't get from another filmmaker. And that, to me, is worth treasuring, you know.
4: Um, can we talk a little Dogville and Mandalay for a minute? Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Um, Dogville, for me, I, I wish I'd gotten to Manderley. I I do plan to watch it because I'm such a huge fan of Dog, Dogville. The Well,
1: Dogville's a better film. First yeah, I,
4: I don't like um, Manderley, and I loved Dogville. Uh, oh, interesting. He,
1: I, I like them both, but I like them both for vastly different reasons. But that Stellan Skarsgård quote that you played before we talked Breaking in the Waves, where he said, and I know he's probably... Mimicking, He's in Lars von Trier mode when he's talking about his own Lars von Trier movies. But Stellan Skarsgård is saying he doesn't write very good parts for men. Uh, Paul Bettany in um, Dogville is – he easily goes toe-to-toe with Nicole Kidman mm-hmm. in that movie. And Nicole Kidman is a force of nature and that, that's probably the biggest weakness of Manderlay is that Bryce
3: Dallas – She cannot keep up with that at all. She
1: like, and and maybe if it was just if if she just made her own film and she wasn't playing the same character, maybe it would be fine. But I think I'd still have problems with it. But yes, I agree that that's a big part of it. You watch Nicole Kidman in Dogville, and you are like, wow, that's not nearly as good. It's different, but it's not as good. And the arc in Mandalay is is not as thorough as it is hmm. in dogville. But the thing that um, I love about dogville is that even though you can, you can play the game of, you know, this, you know, means this, right. Or this is an allegory for that. The movie is fundamentally human. Like, so it really doesn't, people are like the anti-American. Like when I saw this at the Toronto film festival, I would say over half the audience walked out. Like there was a thousand. Oh people yeah, my so experience many, was like that too. So many people walked out. I mean, the movie's long, so there's that. But I, I, I truly believe that the Dogville experience could be anywhere. It, it he, okay, he chose to make it obviously America, mm-hmm. um, but it could be almost anywhere. No, and, yeah, definitely. And, and and there's something pretty great about that like the fact that he can make this there's so much going on in dogville and the cast in that movie is he always has great casts and he always has great actors working with him and and it's funny that the men always come back like even the guy from zentropa uh he's one of the gangsters in dogville right so like he's still appearing in
4: Von Trier Well, he films. must be an okay guy to work with if people keep coming back to work with him.
1: But, but the women, uh, Charlotte Gainsbourg, when she made Melancholia, was the first woman that made more than one Von Trier film. Hmm. But um,
3: even, even Kristen Dunst was very uh, supportive of him before the Nazi yeah, thing, where she right. had to Absolutely. distance herself for PR reasons. She was... I, think, I think that the movies are emotionally draining
1: enough that, that the actress is maybe not ready to jump right back in um, and I think Nicole Kidman probably would have done Manderley had it not been for like a bunch of – like often it's just scheduling reasons, right? Uh, I, but thought, the, I thought the some, reason why she didn't was because she had other stuff going on. Exactly. It was it was just a, like her slate was full or whatever. But, but but often that's a reason given if you don't want to work. So it's hard to parse what the reasons are. But I, I really would love to see <laughs> Manderley with Nicole Kidman in the role but it is funny how much of the cast of manderley is the same cast from dogville which is this mm. other weird element that you have chloe sevigne and the 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 creepy brother from big love he he plays the isn't the jeremy davies in dogville jeremy davies is a gang, one of the gangsters mm. um oddly enough james khan is replaced with willem dafoe and i love willem dafoe my son is named willem um <laughs> But I don't. think I Willem felt Defoe, I felt Willem Dafoe was a better
3: choice. Actually, no, it's the way. one thing I actually Sell thought was improved.
1: Sell that to me. James Con <laughs> is so uh, he's fucking god. He's Ralph Richardson. <laughs> I'm Bandit's god.
3: He's I, so good in dog I, dog. I I like the only defense I have is I was coming from I had already seen Antichrist and knew what Defoe oh, okay. and Von Trier do together, mm-hmm, and I right. feel like they're the like almost perfect actor director combination. I wish he'd do more with him.
1: Right, I I actually think that well the the weird thing is is that when I watch Dogville, it's I get this huge like you get this huge like with all of his you know martyred women like you get this Jesus Christ thing. I mean the character's yeah. name is Grace, <laughs> <laughs> not uh, subtle. And 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 James Kahn comes in like fucking gods. He's like. You don't have to sacrifice. I give you your superpowers. Go out and be the fucking
3: vengeful Jesus, you know? Like I love that at the ending. Yeah, but at the but in in Mandalay, he just is like, "Oh, you want to fix these people? He's Go ahead. Like a I'm a doofus." Off. Like but Willem Dafoe is just like
1: a doofus <laughs> in Mandalay. Like that that it, which is funny. It's a great Lars von Trier contradiction in that all of the things that he kind of set up with the characters
3: in Dogville, well, they don't pay off at all. He yeah. consciously, he
1: consciously not pays them off. It's
3: I feel like yeah. that's part of the reason he's not made Washington. I don't think he knows what to do with those characters. Well, he did. Uh, he did make Washington. Um, did
1: and he? Uh, well, in my mind, um, uh, damn. Now I'm 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 drawing a blank um, as to what movie. Like I, I I felt that one of the movies that he made. Recently, felt like it might as well have been that third one, but now hmm. I'm drawing blank on what. I don't
3: know what that. Is. Is. I think I he had, he mean. abandoned
4: the idea of this becoming a trilogy, but I know that like I think he mentioned that. You know, th- despite he how better use
1: Jessica Chastain if he makes the third <laughs> part because I want him to go through the fucking
3: redheads. Yeah, like, I'm pretty sure has- that that would be a logical choice. For it that would role, be. Though, so. I could totally see her Someone fitting get into the Vontreer. Von phone.
1: Yeah, <laughs> let's
4: get on that.
3: She'll, she'll do
1: that. Uh, but the the thing with Manderley that separates it from Dog- Dogville is completely about the allegory and the characters. Yes. And I find Manderley is entirely actually about structured plot. Manderlei has Hmm. plot twists and major turns that I don't believe Dogville has those things. Dogville is very straightforward and it just lets the characters exist in the town and shit happens, make no mistake. But it's not this controlling I'm doing this because later I'm going to come and flip it on its ear. Whereas Manderlei has three plot twists, three biggies and it doesn't matter. I can tell you you won't see them coming. Like They're big Fucking awesome movie type, like Sixth Sense kind of plot. Twist. What? That's crazy. And, and I wouldn't. I will would, have three. A, I
3: wouldn't give you three of those. Three. I could give you three without saying I, them. I can give you two, but I, not three. <laughs> uh, my problem with Mandalay is I feel like the lesson of Grace wants to fix things and something shouldn't be fixed right. is like thudded home in the first 20 minutes mm. and then he i feel like him using slavery imagery is the closest he's come to being provocative without doing anything with it i feel like it's too much no, he's the no, wrong because, person to use those
1: but but he does the awesome plug your ears jim um he Will does do. the awesome uh like i love the idea of forced boundaries for us to properly live like it's the opposite of liberalism is the fact or sorry it's the opposite of conservatism where you need boundaries like you know conservatism says you you, you can't be able to do these things because society will run better whereas grace is like as liberal as you could possibly get and I mean I'm a hardcore liberal but I find it funny that like the society in Manderley, um has decided that it wants these horrible constraints, like these brutal constraints, for it to make it work. But are you still plugging
4: your ears, Jim? Um, I can be.
1: <laughs> okay, plug them right now. Okay, plug them right now because I because this is full on spoilers. I want to tell Matt it's so it's the clock. Okay, the number in the book. Oh, the clock! That, I forgot about and the clock. And that's the best. That's the best <laughs> gag in the whole movie. Is that the the when John Hurt, who's also awesome in both of these movies. Oh, absolutely. It should be said that his narration is amazing. When he says, time should not be set by ballot, like that is freaking funny because that's what extreme liberalism wants. It wants everything to be by committee and it's like, you cannot set gravity by committee and and she pays for it like that i, I those agree the with the three biggies so those i are
3: agree it. with everything you say i just feel like that's like a political lesson that could have been done in much different contexts ones that aren't so charged and feel misappropriated in this one i i just like it, it's all about what he sets us in that i feel is the problem there mm-hmm. and maybe it's just me like it hit the button and i can't connect with that but there it is yeah i'll give you this
1: I'll give you this. Mandalay is forty-five minutes shorter than Dogville, but feels thirty minutes longer. Absolutely, <laughs> uh,
4: I, I, there's yeah. Dogville just flies by. It Manderley really does.
1: Opens up great. Mandalay opens up great, and Mandalay closes great. But there is some mushy middle, like the whole bit with the sandstorm and the the, the pie and the girl. It's like <laughs> uh, it's just kind of wow. It, it's just it's it's fine, and it's like Dogville in that things are happening, but Manderley is far more interested in, like, aggressive rug-pulling plotting. I, I really mm. do believe that. And and that's funny, because that's not what you expect when he does the chalk on the soundstage. You expect something more like Dogville, where it's yeah. just this straight, our-town drama, where you can see all the characters. And I should say that, um, stop me if I'm just rambling, but the one scene that floors me to this day, it's the best fucking scene in Dogville, is the scene when Stellan Skarsgård no, it's not Stellan Skarsgård yeah, it's Stellan Skarsgård rapes Nicole Kidman, and because it's a soundstage, you can see everyone going about their business, Yeah, like, there's no walls that is the, It's the, what was that woman in New York that was like beaten to death and no one called the cops, like right right in the middle of like, all these witnesses <sighs> yeah. like, that scene fucking crystallizes that, it's a and, and, and it can only work because they decided to go with that chalk right. floor. Like, th- that scene is such a natural extension of that style. And it's, it's the it, – uh, when people go, like, why the hell did he do that? Like, he said, well, I want to focus on character and I don't need to worry about props and right. all this kind of stuff. But, but it, it, that scene transcends the simple, I just want you to focus on the characters.
4: That scene can only work – because the walls aren't there. It's freaking awesome. And, then, and and the scene where she's just riding in the truck, too, I just love that. Oh, yeah, yeah, Because you like don't a know the CGI certainty. CGI element of that, right? Yeah, there no, is, definitely.
1: CGI, like there's a layer, like you can kind of see through the, mm-hmm. the sheet or whatever.
4: Yeah, uh, the cover, I love, right.
1: I love that. Again, I can never pronounce that guy. I think he's uh, Eastern European. He's the guy from Big Love, the creepy uh, creepy brother. The, the, he the, He's the guy who drives the truck in Dog Bill, and his mm-hmm. constant justifying his misbehavior by his job title is friggin' hilarious and is so true. Von
4: Trier Trier mentioned that he wanted to, um, you know, establish a character, you know, can we accept grace for what she does at the end? You know, can we go with, you know, this concept of revenge in the midst of like, we, I like, I love this movie so much because it's, you know, it's, it's a cinematic allegory, and it's kind of complex, and it's got like the, the the Hawthorne and Herman Melville kind of approaches to characters representing specific ideas, and not necessarily they're not necessarily fully fleshed out human beings. But they, I feel like this the ending of this movie is kind of a catharsis, and I'm still like thinking, well, <laughs> they kind of asked for it, but you know that should they be forgiven and that's i like the fact that you can look at it in terms of a religious perspective or a political perspective and i think a lot of people really felt like he was saying you know america should be condemned you know in a similar sort of uh you know confrontational manner just uh, the whole
1: i i got the idea that america wants to be the new testament of the bible but deep down America is the Old Testament all the way. Mm. America doesn't believe in the law and it doesn't believe in mercy. It believes in an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Sure, And okay. I mean, you can filter so much stuff uh, in in the American response to things. and And in a way, Dogville is Zentropa where the character doesn't Stay passive. Like mm-hmm. he, instead of having that final scene in Zentropa, um, Nicole Kidman keeps the machine gun <laughs> and 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 guns everyone down and 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 walks away. Like another scene I love in Dogville is the um, she. In order for her to fit in, she's buying like she's just filtering the money back into the store and buying those tacky porcelain figurines. And then when the when Patricia Clarkson smashes them all, and then they echo it by. Having her dictate her children <laughs> are killed in the exact manner that yeah. she's mass. Like
4: I'm like, whoa, that, hello. I know
1: that is. That is that I is just hard have the most stuff. insane
4: visceral reaction to all that, and um, it's so crazy to have that feeling of you know an eye for an eye because As I don't like I don't like that feeling that way. Old but
1: testament poetic justice. Yeah, the like, poetic
4: justice element of it really feels, you know, justified, and yet it's not, (laughs) but it's, it's, and I understand what he could be going for. I mean, Americans send, you know, send people overseas to help, and then we, uh, we are used and abused in return, or vice versa, but I don't necessarily think, I mean, this came out at a particularly, you know, politically uh, charged time in our country, for sure, but I think he's looking at it as humanity,
3: it's this way i mean absolutely oh, yeah I, not- I, I can't i don't think it's particular to america and i right. was going to say like we had talked about this being universal and then you were going on about this being america and i think it's more than that like the was res- like the james Con argument that doing like killing these people is the respectable thing to do because mm-hmm. you treat them as people who have agency and should take responsibility for their actions right. yeah i feel like that's a universal argument exactly for these kind of actions and, and it's funny because again manderley is is kind of that
1: inverted hmm. but not really um if you if you if you think about how manderley like how manderley plays out um it 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 plays out that P- yeah there's a desire for autonomy but then there's also this desire to be i mean if you're if you're slaves you're absolved of all the sort of shit that you'd have to get together on your own yeah <laughs> and so there's also this humanity thing to just completely give over it and then if 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 i'm enslaved or if i'm not responsible for my actions then i can just behave Like an impetuous child and be fine because it was out of my control anyway. So that's the that's definitely the give and take that Trier likes to play with is like on one hand. Yeah, if you're if you're if you want to give people true freedom, then they will probably not last very long. (laughs) because they
4: will do horrible things to each other
1: and then one of them will kill the other. Um,
4: No, I think, you know, Von Trier said it best when he felt that the the overall point of the film is that evil can arise anywhere as long as the situation calls for it. And I think that, you know, people... I don't know if it's necessarily like the choice to use, you know, uh, the David Bowie song and the um, closing credits sequence that, um, you know, I... uh, I, I definitely I question that. I can I tell you question why.
1: That. I can why von Trier picks on America is that in American world press and world politics and how it frames its position in the world through the New York Times or through whatever media outlets, it is that America tends to like to cling to the moral high ground, and mm-hmm. that's what. Pisses off Von Trier. He's like, you know what, Americans? You're just as hypocritical and shit covered as the rest of us. Yeah. So, and I'm sure that if Von Trier ever makes a movie about Israel, (laughs) which (laughs) might have him killed. He's not um, going to make Munich,
3: put it that way. Uh,
1: exactly. But he would do the same thing. He would be like, well, why do you guys get the moral high ground? Right. You know what I mean? Like that's – it's that's his, 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 his not that he's anti-American. He's, he has no problem with people being horrible. It's what he has problem with is people being horrible under the guise of nobility, which is exactly why the Calvinist church members come across like assholes in – breaking the waves because that's exactly what he doesn't like and you know he has no problem with someone just being base you know what i mean mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's this it's when stalin skarsgård starts to manipulate why he's having sex like he Stellan skarsgård's just a fucking hairy ape in dogville um but when he starts to say you, did, you made me do this to you because you didn't respect me. That's all fucking rationalization, moral high ground bullshit. Yeah. And that's what he calls out. And he calls it out with grace as much as he does with the other members of Dogville. The thing is, with Manderley, when you watch it, you kind of already know everything. You kind of to a degree know it when you watch Dogville. You're like, I, I kind of see where this is going to go, to a degree. But with Manderley, you really know so, it makes Mandalay feel a bit longer because it 's like, do we really need to watch Grace learn this type of lesson and mm-hmm. the way Von Trier makes up for it is with the with the Holy Trinity of plot twists or whatever in the movie, and then that 's just how he keeps things huh. a bit lively. But I would love to see him make um, uh, washington and 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 set it in maine because that 's something he 'd do. Um,
3: well, that's where they're headed, right? They started in the west coast and then went to the south and gotta end up in New England. Yeah, yeah but that would I make mean, sense. If he's gonna call it Washington,
1: wouldn't he put it in Washington, D.C. Absolutely C.? not. No, but no,
3: he'd put it in Maine, you know, like he just ah,
1: let's, let's do it on Rhode Island. Let's let it'll be like Moonrise Kingdom.
4: Um, yeah. So really quickly here, I do wanna I th- I think I wanna bring up melancholia just because I had this weird sort of interpretation of it. Uh, the second time I watched it recently and it could just be again, either projecting or me talking my, out of my ass a little bit, but, um, you know, there, there is something about the, uh, again, there is like a, a kind of a dichotomy between the, the two sisters and their, um, sort of emotional response to the end of the world. But I was starting to think of, cause most people just automatically go, well, what an obvious, uh, you know sort of metaphor to have you know melancholia the planet represent depression and have it come in to these you know these women's lives and crush them and destroy the world based on you know uh the apocalyptic kind of setting of the movie but then i had this idea that uh both of these women represent Lars von Trier and their resp- and like his own sort of internal conflict that he has whether if it's based around his own depression, because he's talked about openly about having depression and anxiety and depression in this movie is kind of portrayed as resilience because you see Kirsten Dunst go through this sort of transition by the end that she's come to a point of acceptance to the, you know, and her response, if you watch that very final shot, she's completely still. Whereas, um, Charlotte Gainborough's character, she's freaking out and feeling really anxious. And then I thought, maybe melancholia the planet is actually planet earth crashing in on these two people because that's what happens when you have depression or anxiety the the outside world the earth the external environment feels like it's suffocating you it's destroying you and the way they also protect the child by creating this like little f- imaginary fortress you know they both want to protect him from this you know plague of uh, sadness because i think that you know we don't really necessarily as we don't see it as explicitly but i i think charlotte gainsborough might have some affliction not unlike her sister and that terrifies her and she's good at covering it up and internalizing it until of course the end of the world happens so like that was kind of like my weird sort of psychoanalytical Interpretation of uh, of melancholia this time around because I know Patrick Patrick's argument was that the first half of the movie doesn't work effectively because anybody would be depressed at that wedding any person with those you know I parents and family would disagree. be depressed
3: I, I don't think that's true at all I feel like that whole first section is like all of that stuff is just everyone's family's dysfunctional, <laughs> and these are specific dysfunctions, sure. But it's her trying to like keep it together and expect this sort of unrealistic happiness. That is what depressed people do. Like right. they see happiness as this ideal thing where you're smiling all the time and everything's fine, and like postcards. And that's why, like her running up through the ch- like the church barefoot wants to the. Uh, the limo stalls or whatever is straight out of a movie or like a commercial. It, it's not a realistic scenario. It's her idealized version of mm-hmm. what being married and being in love is. And when it doesn't, when it's not that thing, when it's just, Hey, sometimes your family sucks and being married isn't the end of the world and happiness. She can't deal with it. She falls apart completely.
1: That's a good Also point. the first half of melancholia is friggin' hilarious. <laughs> That's true too. This, no, but this yeah. is the thing. No, it Everyone is. Everyone always craps on Los Fundrier for making these horribly blunt movies. Their movies are funny. They're really funny, and I, and I, I don't mean it's because I'm not into the movie, so I just find it ridiculous what he's doing. No, there's actual jokes and timing and comedy in those movies. Like, I mean, uh, Charlotte Rampling in Melancholia is freaking hilarious. John Hurt. In Melancholia is freaking hilarious. And so what I think – why I think that first half exists is entirely to act as this – a lot of action, a lot of stuff happening. Like you said, the – like I love that limo image at the beginning Mm -hmm. where you can't get down the street and blah, blah, blah. But that exists to give a lot more running around for when nothing happens in the second half of the movie. So now yeah. you're like feeling every second that goes by because there was drama yep. every five seconds in the first half of that movie. And now it's just interminable waiting. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and, and I, I love that. I, I, I would love to know how conscious – whether Von Trier does this stuff by instinct or whether it's totally conscious, like like you said, he like like the dancer in the dark thing, where if you had left within Bjork's rules, like, and he makes up rules and he has like the five obstructions and and and, and, and all these different things. So I, I just wonder how 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 much does Lars von Trier overwrite the movie and then readjust by having the actors do their thing. Well, like, looking at the, the screenplay
4: thing. for Breaking the Waves, he did excise quite a bit. From his own in like lines of dialogue that I don't know if they would have added much to the scenes overall, but there were certain things I was surprised that he omitted, including like you know a really intense, passionate sex scene between you know, Stellan Skarsgård Stellan and Emily Watson before he leaves on the plane, which I thought that might have been even you know more effective to have that in the movie, but yet. He has his reasons, and I think that you know he he makes these choices. It could be in the editing room. Maybe he did film that, but well, I, think- I think you
1: do get a good idea from Breaking the Waves. I, it was funny because way early in the podcast, I said that that all of the sex scenes in, in in his films are horrible, but the the sex scene in the sex scenes when she's first discovering sex in Breaking the Waves are, are really really well done. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know if they're Honest, but they're amazingly cinematic in a intimate kind of way, not in a lewd kind of way. Yeah, and um, and there's one scene in Melancholia uh, which is exceptionally erotic. Uh, is that one shot of Kirsten Dunst on like the riverbed? Yeah, basking the in the light like, of I, the planet. I, I, do, I do not find Kirsten Dunst to be a particularly attractive woman for my taste. She looks like Billy Corgan in a fright wig most of the time. Um, <laughs> but man, that one shot is like, wow. That, okay. Maybe it's a beautiful moment. And that score, during a Lars von Trier movie. Um, I mean, yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's a wonderful moment, but, but it's different than in breaking the waves when the three or four sex scenes, when all is good in, um, in their marriage or whatever, um, those sex scenes are I do have kind of an intimacy, and I find it interesting that von Trier doesn't frame any of those sex scenes in any sort of usual way. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, they have sex in like the bathroom of their, of their yeah. wedding, and, the, and it's, it's, that it's, happens it's in both Breaking the scene. Waves
4: and then Melancholia, both movies. Just it having isn't it. sex a <laughs> thing for that. yeah, I guess sex so. in a bathroom on a wedding. Yeah, um, no, I mean, I, I agree that the, the the first half has levity in it, and then. The second half, I mean, it's just so insane. Like, just, um, you know, the the moments with Kirsten Dunst and you know, like having dinner and saying this tastes like ashes, or her not being yep. able to get in the bathtub. I mean, just like, I, th- I was so taken aback by how intensely personal he portrayed depression in that in that way. And from an actress, I wasn't expecting that kind of performance from either. Well,
1: it's it's a cliche to say well the actor went through this is like well Polanski was pushed out through the wall and and the Krakow croc- ghetto so therefore this this and this and his wife was killed by uh, whatever uh, and and yada 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 but you believe it with Lars von Trier yeah. whether whether it's his own myth making or not like I don't see how anyone can view Melancholia without. Feeling that the writer, director, that the, 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 the primary creative forces of melancholia have a damn good sense of what depression is. Like I, I go through mild fits of depression and nothing as extreme as what's represented there. Sure. But I, I think I have enough of an insight to, for, the, for that movie, as bombastic as it is, to, st- to still pass the sniff test of it feels honest Mm -hmm. under all of its pomp and circumstance. Well, that's Um, the
4: thing when, you know, uh, when he brought up earlier that the fact that like both uh, Antichrist and uh, melancholia can cause panic attacks uh, for, for somebody who's experienced those personally and has had little fits of depression. um, There is probably a reason why both of those movies really get under my skin because they feel so much like either experience, like just, the anxiety you can experience especially you know if you've ever been lost out in the woods that that's that's terrifying <laughs>
1: well the the beauty about antichrist is that it is actually Lars von Trier back in Zentropa mode mm-hmm. like uh, he he is going to fucking town with like like images like that tree with all the hands in oh, it yeah. has that artificiality of Zentropa that totally works like there's these scenes where You know, in a normal movie, it's just filler. A character looks out the window, and you see the just because it looks cool on screen, you see the trees going by at speed, and the you know the film can't keep up, so it's kind of a water wash of colors. But he actually integrates like horror elements into that, and right.
3: It's I was pretty, say, pretty fantastic. Um, Antichrist is the scariest movie I've seen in years. I, it is. I can't even handle that movie. Mm-hmm. It is.
1: It's legitimately
3: like even even if you take out the disgustingness
1: of Antichrist, when no, that's not that's not even genital, that's like the that's catharsis. Not it. That's not it. That yeah. it, it, it's the actual like. Do you not get? Do you not get chills when Willem Dafoe is just standing still outside and these acorns are
3: falling? That image, yeah creeps the shit out of me. And of just, course the oh, go ahead. Or even just the like she can't walk through the woods and so he has to carry her cuz she's scared of some nebulous idea out there. Mm. Is all horror things and the woods are just always there and always the backdrop and they don't look like any woods that exist in reality. They're just mythic woods, capital W. Yeah. Well, and that's the primal image, right? Like that yeah. is our the primal deep down human
1: fear is that a forest at night just changes into something truly horrific. But I got to give him huge props to that opening sequence in that movie, uh, especially if you have your own children. Um, (laughs) That fear is so palpable. And again, it's the sex and death thing going on. But um, the, the way that scene plays out is so visceral. And again, it works because most horror movies pound you or jump scare you or or, or win you over with cuts no he creeps this movie into does you it in so like the slowest right. possible motion you can imagine. and you know everything that's gonna happen and it's horrific because you gotta wait mm-hmm. <laughs>
4: and i love how i love how he does that um yeah both both openings of melancholy and antichrist are just well, jaw-droppingly gorgeous and just like terrifying. he went
1: through that, just like he went through with his sort of like the dogma esque phase where he's like, let's just have the actors act and I follow them around with cameras. When he discovered that phantom slow mo camera, he's oh, like, yeah. I, I'm I've in got love. Ideas with this camera, yeah. <laughs> and he he does he does very very good work with it. The last movie that I would like to talk about sure. uh, with von Trier is he didn't direct it, but he wrote it. Um, is uh, a movie called uh, Dear Wendy. Um, which stars Jamie Bell, Allison Pill, and Bill Pullman. And nice. It is. Um, That's sorry. That that was my Washington. That 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 was the film. That that is. I haven't, I haven't seen oh, that. Oh, so. um, I didn't so know that was. Okay. It, it is. It is. It's Thomas Vinterberg who did Festin and was his co-dogma rule writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's set in a mining town where one of the kids doesn't want to grow up to work in the mine and he instead, you know, discovers poetry and blah, blah, blah. And, but but he, they form him and this girl who's played by Alison Pill. I, I can't, Alison Pill, I mean, this movie's like 03 or 04, so this might even be before Manderley. Um, but, no, I'm wrong. I think it's 07. Uh, but anyways, Alison Pill is pretty young in it. And the two of them form this gun club where they worship... Guns, and they express their love of art and nonviolence through gun ownership. This is again classic von Trier, um, and they they form this this dandy club, the, the club called the Dandies, and um, they it's basically like um, it's like a sadistic, super fucked up version. Of Dead Poet Society, and I, I, Dead Poet Society is the only Peter Weir movie that I don't like. Like I love, completely agree, and I fucking hate Dead Poet Society. So I watching know. him make his gutter trash Dead Poet Society is fucking awesome. And so, and then this uh, this black kid comes in. Um, uh, and uh, he he adds this like so. Jamie Bell has got this romance thing going with Allison Pill, and the, maybe the gun club just exists so he can fuck her. But whatever, the black kid comes and fucks up the whole sexual thing, and it becomes this just mess of teenage emotions Ooh. in this club. But at the exact moment, they come up with a use for their gun club in this town square. The 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 black kid's mother is so a. Afraid that um, that the America, which is represented by this town, Bill Pullman's the sheriff. Um, she's so terrified she cannot get out to the store to buy coffee. So the gun club runs a full military covering mission to get her from her apartment to the to the store to buy coffee, and it's played like fucking Full Metal Jacket and it is it just it has to be seen this movie when it came out was loathed by everyone and the movie is fucking awesome it is so good and the way they play out the the final sequence is so absurd it is so ridiculous um but somehow it works and it even though it's not directed by Von Trier, it's like watching True Romance. Yes, it's directed by Tony Scott, but you can feel all the Tarantinoisms coming through the screenplay. That's this movie, and huge props for they use the zombies time of the season. Um, Ooh, one of like, my favorites. Massive it's like the anthem of the movie and it is so effectively used again in the Tarantino thing. It's like, you can't really use stuck in the middle with you anymore. Like it, the song is now officially owned (laughs) by reservoir dogs. Yeah. For me, that zombies tune as, and now like there's some God awful remix rap version of it out there right Uh. now. But the, the, that song was great before. It's now transcendently associated with that movie. And yeah, if you can find it, it's fantastic. <laughs> that's it's how like
4: a, I. That's how I feel about "Video Killed the Radio Star" after "Take This Waltz." Like it just forever has changed yeah, for me. Absolutely. That song. Um, um, I'm, yeah, no, so, I'm, I'm totally gonna check this one. I'm just gonna yeah. add Medea. Wait, it's not Medea. What, how do you pronounce it? Media. Media. M yeah, E nope.
3: D E A. Oh.
4: Oh, okay. Be- I just the want period. to think I, for some reason. I just wanted to think of Lars von Trier doing a Tyler Perry movie. I would doubt be the greatest thing
3: on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to add uh, that and
4: Dear Wendy to the queue. Yeah. You ever
3: do? You do ever do a Tyler Perry show? Have yeah, we back. did. Because I We've have not a Tyler Perry show. Oh, oh Tyler, You gotta
1: you gotta record I, a voicemail addendum. I don't know. maybe <laughs> like a rant addendum or something. Oh, but that'd the, be awesome. Uh, Dear Wendy is is uh, I I cannot recommend this movie enough it's got an iconic Bill Pullman performance and it is all of those things that he does so if Dogville is like whatever religion intolerance the immigrant experience like all those things that Dogville are and Manderley is
4: slavery slavery and
1: boundaries and freedom like that's really all those things wrapped up Dear Wendy is Washington and it's about gun control (laughs) and it is so wonderful it's a western too so cool it plays out like a western and it is um it is fantastic if you're yeah it it's got a little bit of fight club in it it's got a little bit of three kings in it it's got a lot of that sort of high noon town square kind of thing going Hmm. it's all right
4: well high praise indeed i'll definitely check that out sooner than later like the more we're talking about von Trier, the more I want to watch his other movies too that I didn't get sure to catch way. up with in time. I, um, we I, should. I
1: must admit, I went through a minor fit of depression this week, and I think it was just because things were so busy. But it was like I, you know, I rewatched within the span of like four days. I watched like four von Trier films. I'm like, oh, maybe man. it's like actually seeping into me. And these are long films. Like you're saying, he exercised or excised. Tons of stuff that are breaking the waves. Isn't that movie like pushing three hours? Yeah, I know. In its final form. Yeah.
4: That's crazy. But it's also, it's probably the humidity and the heat for me that's causing a little bit of depression yeah, well, that, and isolation. Yeah, <sighs> true enough. Just like basking in the air conditioning. So, why don't we um, go ahead and give our top three Von Trier films? Uh, I'm okay with going first because. Uh, okay. It's pretty. It wasn't too hard for me. Maybe you know, once I catch up with some of his other stuff, it'll be more difficult. But for me, number one is Dogville. Number two is Melancholia, and number three is Antichrist. Kurt, what are yours? Uh, you better go to Matt. Okay, go to Matt. <laughs> really? Oh. oh my God! I just really put you guys on the <laughs> spot. A, you do. You are. It's
3: tough,
1: especially after we've been talking about. You're it. You're going
4: to have to arm wrestle each other.
3: Uh, one would be Antichrist. Nice. Uh, Two would probably Dogville. And three, I almost want to say the five obstructions, but I know it doesn't count. So (laughs) probably Melancholia or Dance in the Dark. Okay. I couldn't pick. I can't pick. Sorry. It's fine. Not going to happen.
1: Yeah. I'm going to say one is Dogville. Uh, Two... Is breaking the waves, and uh, three is, and I'm going to cheat here is um, both Kingdom series together as a super mega movie. That's
3: a good choice. Mm, that's so another that one I got to really watch. Three
1: didn't happen. Well, again, that awesome actor, uh, what's his name?
3: Um, Ernst Hugo Yar and uh, I don't remember. Uh, he Yargard, died. yes, he died right. So, ap- did, so did the lady who played uh, Mrs. Drusa. Died Nance since a, then. This is what killed Twin Peaks from
1: ever coming back together when ah. Jack Nance died. But have you seen any pictures of the Ernst character? Because he was like a not a hammer horror, but like in the Scandinavian world, he was like this cult horror, hmm. like Vincent Price kind of guy. But if you look at him, he is a dead ringer when he's like in his 20s and 30s, dead ringer for Joseph Cotton. Like if you if you go and Google him and find pictures of him when he's really young
3: I would not like, I have mean, called that at all. He, he, older, he, he's like older he's
1: he is kind of a creepy, paunchy, kind of older he's awesome. He's yes. unden- in the kingdom when he's fucking rallying against the heavens on the top of the
3: hospital roof. Uh, the those one, scenes are awesome. The one best part of Boss of It All is that there is a Danish scum callback and it's the best <laughs> part of that movie. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, nice. that is just—it's wonderful. But yeah, you go and look at
1: pictures, and like, I could picture like some, um, uh, you know, old Danish third man with him <laughs> in the role, oh and it would be, and it would be, uh, uh, um, it would be, it would be like a Carl Theodore Dreyer's the third man, <laughs> and he's the star. <laughs>
3: I, that would be amazing still Orson Welles though can't recast Orson Welles <laughs> no. yeah yeah he could do like he could farm it out like little franchises of
1: different countries and different directors where he gets to play he gets to play the same character
4: well let's uh, sort of wrap things up here I'm. Uh, it'll be very interesting to see how people respond to his next film that he's currently in production on which is uh, again probably another sort of uh, <laughs> blunt title, if, if, if there ever was one, but it's just called the Nymphomaniac, and uh, it's a two-part film with uh, Charlotte Gainsborough again. So uh, it should be interesting to see what he does with this. Uh, it's very. In- he, he's he's claimed that um, it's going to be another sort of in-your-face portrayal of sexuality from age, you know, from puberty. To fifty. Yeah, puberty to fifty. So uh, but,
3: also Stellan Skarsgard is in that Oh, nice. he's playing opposite her. Nice. Keep Another in mind epic. that
1: their company, Zentropa, has produced, not directed by Von Trier, unless you count the idiots, um, several hardcore pornography films. Oh. And released them. So it's I don't like at least as the company goes. Like and for that matter, it's a horrible film, but um that base moi was produced hmm. and released by Zentropa. And uh, I think, I could be wrong on that, but, and if, I don't know if you guys have seen Clown. Mm-mm. I actually like I, it now I... when I see the Zentropa logo come up. Cause he's like, they've produced a lot of films that right. have nothing to do with, like Von Trier doesn't have any real hand in them. The the studio's big enough to handle a lot of films. And now it's like, I get that little thrill, like, with, I don't know, like, with the Miramax logo in the late 80s. When you see the logo come up, you're like, oh, I'm ready for this. Um, And, yeah, the the Danish comedy Clown, which is kind of like the Danish version of The Hangover, Mm -hmm. um, is produced by them, and it's got a lot of... Well, actually, Von Trier's movies have a lot of nudity in them, eh? To begin with. Like, I mean, you constantly see... um, Like, thanks to Lars von Trier, I know that Isaac de... Ben Cole, like the guy from all the Jim Jarmusch films, has like a horse cock.
4: Like- <laughs> 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 and we, I think the whole world knows that about uh, Fastbender now after Shame.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
4: <laughs> Which was also like in the midst of watching Lars von Trier movies, I, why would I revisit shame in the midst of this? I don't know. Maybe I have, I'm have a masochist yeah. or something. <laughs> yeah, well, let's just sort of conclude here because uh, we're going to lighten things up big time when Patrick returns uh, with a guest, possibly two. Uh, next week, he'll be um, discussing director Richard Lester, so things will be a little less bleak than it was here but I really appreciate both of you guys coming on for this episode so much fun to talk about Trier I was like worried is this gonna be uh, a little too intellectual and too uh, depressing no not at all not when you have guys who know what they're talking about (laughs) and it was a
1: pleasure to virtually meet you Matt
3: yeah likewise Matt where can people find more of your work uh, you can find me on uh, no name movie blog dot WordPress dot com, and I post regular articles. I'm doing a Von Trier thing every Wednesday. Ooh. I'm only halfway through. I've written them all, but I'm only halfway through posting them. Nice. Uh, so if you want more Von Trier, I've got your hookup. up. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Litrock, L I T R O C K, where I tweet way too much, way too early in the morning.
4: We all do. Excellent. And Kurt, where can people find you? Uh,
1: You can find me at uh, row3.com. I generally do a lot of the sort of not-too-deep posts, trailers and just kind of stuff, and then we record our uh, weekly uh, podcast, the uh, Row 3 Cinecast. Um, You can find me doing interviews and film reviews at twitchfilm.net, and occasionally I do on-screen video content, uh, for a wonderful little website in Toronto called the dot com, um, and uh, other places as well. I'm on the Twitter, which is at triflic t r i f l i c, uh, and uh, the Facebook and the Google Plus and all that good stuff.
4: Yeah,
1: Instagram, Letterbox. <laughs> God knows, there's too much goddamn social media out there.
4: I know, and I'm a part of all that as well. But uh, if you want to get in touch with us, please send us an email at directorsclubpodcast at com and the website is directorsclubpodcast.com. On that website also is our voicemail number, so we've really enjoyed for the last couple episodes having um, some voicemail contributions to play uh, along with our usual uh, director introduction. So thanks to everybody for participating, and I love making this interactive, and we're also on... On Facebook, and uh, I'm at letterboxed at instant gym and at Twitter at instant gym. So get in touch, say hello. Um, Can I like, say
1: hi to Zach for, um, yeah, for Zach? Uh, giving a shout out to me? And I think it is a wonderful cue on your part, Patrick, of getting Stellan Skarsgård to call in. <laughs>
4: yeah, well, absolutely. That was very it's nice. Amazing. Plugged. So. Okay, thanks guys. We'll see you in a week for uh, Richard Lester and then a bonus episode coming up as well. So thanks again for listening. All right, goodbye.
1: Ben Cole, like the guy from all the Jim Jarmusch films, has like a horse cock. Like, <laughs>
4: Behind the bridge, he lays <laughs> down. He frowns.
0: My life's a funny thing. Am I still too young? You kissed the violin there. She took his ring.
4: Transition over into the uh uh review of Europa. So let's do this.
1: I was pretty smooth. I thought we were doing it. <laughs> <laughs>